God of War Ragnarok. There were crazy high expectations for this game, of course coming off of the back of God of War 2018, the reboot of this franchise, people wanted this game to take everything that that title did really well, turn the knob up to 11 and add in a bunch of other stuff while tying up a Norse narrative saga that was epic enough in scale that they needed two games to cover it and not just one. I mean, it, it's not easy to do what people wanted them to do. And I, for one, was actually quite skeptical of this game when it first was announced because initially it was announced for release in 2021. Those of you who are paying close attention will know that that was last year. <laughs> so apparently the original plan was for this game to come out last holiday season, and they took an extra year to polish and refine. That to me already is a little crazy, especially because that would indicate that in terms of scope, all of the stuff they wanted to do in this game, they figured they could complete within the two and a half to three years between the release of God of War 2018 and the slated release of God of War Ragnarok. And that's not much time in modern AAA development. Honestly, I just expected to run around with Kratos and Atreus beating up on enemies, maybe fighting some bigger bosses, and perhaps a couple of plot twists with Atreus being Loki. Maybe Freya forgives you and decides to help you, and then you all team up against the Allfather together. It seems like a pretty straightforward game to make. It's Ragnarok, everything ends and explodes, you set up for the sequel. Easy peasy, especially because they signaled Kratos' death at the end of the last game on the mural that you discover after you've gone and brought the ashes to the tallest peak in the realms. I think a lot of people thought they knew what this game had to offer, and I'm very happy to report that they were all freaking wrong, including myself. Santa Monica Studio did a lot more than the bare minimum here. There is so much content, so many carefully cultivated experiences, and so much attention to detail that it's frankly insane that this game exists in this way. There's no other way to put it than that they've been very, very busy. And honestly, the idea that they built most of this game in the middle of the COVID pandemic is frankly crazy. Now, I already did a review, thank you to PlayStation for the code, by the way. So this video was not meant to be a one-to-one -one review of the game. I already did that. That video was shorter. I feel like it got most of the overarching points across, but this video is meant to go in detail. And that's why I'm going to warn you now that this will spoil pretty much everything. We're going to be going through the entire story beginning to end, some sections in broad strokes and some a little bit more specifically. We're gonna discuss the intricacies of combat, open world design, some tidbits about the development process, a few hidden secrets within the side quests, and some speculation and theories about the next game and what's happening in future titles. All of this to say, we're spoiling everything, and if you have not played the game, this video is not for you. At least not if you expect to play the game in the future. Because we're going to go through everything similar to my videos on Cyberpunk 2077 and The Last of Us Part 2, this video in a lot of ways kind of replaces your need to play the game if you haven't done it. In a way, these videos are treated sort of like a commentary, where we go through the whole game and offer you my perspective on the title from beginning to end. Of course, this video is going to be long like those other ones, and that's why I've also put it up on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or SoundCloud, where you can download the MP3 directly if you'd like. I don't make any money from those platforms. I just know that a lot of you like to listen in the car or at work or doing something else, and so I figured I'd throw you this bone since not everybody has YouTube Premium. So if you go over there and you listen to this video, or I guess 
it's more of a podcast if you listen over there then at the very least if you could rate the podcast that would go a long way that way other people get notified all you have to do is look up luke stevens on any of those websites or you go down to my link tree in the description box and you can go directly to the page from there also i do not have a sponsor for this video normally for a big critique like this we would have five sponsors sprinkled throughout and it'd be a big money maker, but we're not doing this today. Instead, I wanted to give you a much leaner experience with the video. And instead, all I'm gonna do is briefly plug my new merch line, which we are launching today, actually. <laughs> I've actually been looking for a team to partner with on merchandise for over a year and a half, closer to two years, actually. And it's been an active process. I've had samples sent to me. I've had conference calls. I've had tons of stuff come in where I evaluate all the fabric materials and stuff. None of it was satisfying until I found the current team I'm working with. And honestly, I'm just so excited to finally get around to doing this. I, I've always wanted to provide merchandise. You guys ask for it all the time, but I never wanted to do the crappy like, $5, you know, t-shirt that's like really poorly put together. I wanted to create apparel that was for one really, really nice quality that you're just comfortable wearing for like long recording sessions or whatever you're doing. And also merchandise that looks cool and that, you know, doesn't scream crappy YouTuber merch, you know? I, I wanted it to be something you'd be proud of wearing. And we have a ton of designs in the works, some of which we don't have ready yet and that I can't show you but those will be coming out in the next few weeks and months. Uh, I'm very, very excited. Everything from custom mouse pads that will go over your desk with custom designs to stickers and everything in between. Like we've got a ton of cool stuff coming, so just wait. But the two collections we have right now are the basic Luke Stevens premium merchandise. You see on the website, we have these cool little animations. This was like totally unnecessary, but I told the team, I was like, I really want something cool for the website. So you can go in there and like, mess with it why we needed this i i don't know i just find it cool like if you're gonna come to the website you might as well have fun with it right but once you're done clicking around randomly on the background we also have as you can see the 16x collection which you might be wondering what is the 16x collection about well you see whenever i look at merchandise i always want really detailed merchandise like say say 16 times the detail in my merchandise 16 times the detail. Yes, it's inspired by the Todd Howard quote. I know we wanted to do something cool 16 times themed that wasn't just a picture of Todd Howard's face on a mug because that's really weird. So instead we created these little designs around 16 times the detail. It looks really fashionable and we've got hoodies and stuff themed around it. We've got beanies embroidered. Very, very nice quality as well. I've also got beanies with the, the logo embroidered. Again, we didn't wanna like rush through things. We wanted to get to something that would actually be nice to wear. The fabric used in these shirts is ridiculously soft. It brings the cost up a little, so I don't make as much with these. But I mean, who cares? It's soft to the touch. Come on. And like I said, this is just the beginning. In fact, we haven't even gotten the photos in of me posing in the uh, the merch items, which is coming. We did the, the photo shoot photos are just taking a little bit longer. I was too excited to wait. So I, I decided to put this out now and just show you guys. All told, it's super cool. We have distribution centers, not just in America, but also over in Europe and in Australia. So regardless of where you are in the world, 
It's likely that the products will get to you at a reasonable cost within a reasonable amount of time. None of this like, oh, I ordered merch and it took six months to get here. No, you order it, we'll get it to you fast. And of course you're supporting the channel and these videos that we throw out for free uh, in the process. Like don't feel obligated, but like if you want to support the channel and me in return and Jacob, my editor who desperately needs help, <laughs> this is a great way to do it. And oh man, I again, we have so much stuff coming. We have some crazy cool designs. Oh, I, I'm so excited for you guys to see some of the stuff we have coming down the pike as well. But yeah, th this is like the baseline. This is the starting kit of merchandise. We're happy to launch the website now. LukeStevensTV.com, check it out. All this stuff is available starting today. We have lots more stuff coming down the pike, but if you get this stuff now, you're part of the first people to ever get this merch and I'd be very, very thankful. So check it out. Again, LukeStevensTV.com. Now from the moment we boot up God of War Ragnarok, we're greeted with the title screen. This shows Kratos sitting at a campfire looking longingly into the distance. The top option on the menu is labeled God of War Recap, and this was something I was pleasantly surprised to see. Basically, it runs through the events of the first game in rough detail to give you an idea of what went on and what important plot points are going to return this time around. I had some people in chat when we were streaming this game on launch day asking if they needed to play the first game to enjoy this one. And while I think that this is certainly helpful for players who haven't experienced the first game, it's certainly supposed to be supplemental. It's sort of meant to be a refresher for people who played the first game and just need to be like, okay, yeah, no, he's Loki and then this happened and okay, Baldur's dead. Okay, cool, cool. I'm back. I'm with it. I, I see what we're doing. I really don't think you should be playing this game if you didn't play God of War 2018. And especially considering that God of War Ragnarok is also available on the PlayStation 4, I don't see the reason why you wouldn't just play that game first. It's not crazy long. It's still pretty good. It really does make it feel like a, a sort of prologue to the events of this game. It's like the intro and then this is the real game. It's kind of crazy, but when played in their entirety back to back, the experience is like none other. I mean, it really does feel that fluid a progression. I actually did this myself, went back and played through God of War 2018 once again, right before the launch of God of War Ragnarok to get refreshed on all the gameplay systems, the narrative structure, the open world design and everything else so that I would know what I was comparing it to when I played this new game. And while I still insist that God of War 2018 is tremendous in a lot of ways, I do think it has some pretty serious issues. Navigating between realms is always extremely tedious. Atreus honestly didn't feel that helpful through the majority of the game. Some plot points felt extremely rushed. And of course, the biggest complaint from most people was that the boss variety and the enemy variety was utterly atrocious. I can't even tell you how many times I was excited to play this next level and see what the big boss was gonna be only to be greeted by yet another troll. Ooh, I'm in Helheim. Am I gonna fight the giant bird watching over all of hell? No, I'm gonna fight an ice troll. Ooh, I'm within Tyr's temple, a super secretive area that's been guarded for countless years by a mysterious force. Am I gonna fight some big apparition or version of Tyr that he left behind in a spiritual form? No, I'm gonna fight two trolls. <laughs> and of course, there were a few times where you fought secondary bosses or humanoid bosses, but they usually were extremely similar archetypes with different elemental effects, such as the fight against Magni and Modi. And so again, without a doubt, the biggest complaint people had and the biggest expectation and hope they had for God of War Ragnarok was that they would address and fix the issue with enemy variety. Boss fights were utterly lackluster in 2018. There were a couple of cool ones with the big dragon and even Baldur's fight was kind of okay, but it felt lackluster because you weren't fighting the giant 
in the boss fight, you were fighting Balder, just a humanoid, while the giant tried to stop you from fighting, which it seems like, oh, we have a really cool thing. You're not going to do that. You're going to look over here and do this thing over here, and then the giant's going to occasionally mess with you, and that cool thing's going to be there, but you can't interact with it, really. Again, it just felt like every time something cool was happening in God of War 2018, they would immediately step it back and do the more underwhelming thing. You see the giant bird in hell, you don't fight that thing, you're going to fight another ice troll. That's exactly the feeling that I and many other people had with that game when it launched was, cool thing? Oh no, we're going to settle for something sucky. Another cool thing? Oh no, it's just more of the same. Okay. Now, in addition to these things, I also wanted to see what Ragnarok was going to do in terms of combat difficulty and variety. Of course, by the end of God of War 2018, we already have the axe. We already have the Blades of Chaos. What are they going to do to increase the dynamism of combat? What are they gonna do to shake it up without it just feeling like a huge DLC for God of War 2018? When I replayed that game, I went through on Give Me God of War difficulty as we played it over on stream, over at Luke Stevens Live here on YouTube. I know, I know, we used to stream on Twitch. I became a Twitch partner and then Everybody was like, hey, YouTube's way better for the viewer. And we tried it and everybody loves streaming on YouTube because you can like pause and people can skip ads and stuff. So we moved over to YouTube and that's where we are. I think I'm I'm probably one of the few people that made Twitch partner and within 24 hours left Twitch. You know, it's, it's a little funny, but hey, join us over on uh, YouTube live um, over on Luke Stevens live right now. We're probably streaming at the moment this video goes up. So come and say hi. But the point is we played on the hardest possible difficulty and had a really good time while doing it. And I generally say first playthroughs, you should play on normal second and subsequent playthroughs. You can justify going through on higher difficulties because they force you to engage with every mechanic and system that's there on offer. A perfect example would be a game like the Witcher three. You can play through on the normal difficulty, but if you do so, you probably are not going to spend much time messing with alchemy, upgrading your potions, crafting materials. You'll mostly go through the motions of the game's story, collecting items, swords, and equipment as they are presented to you and you very rarely will make active steps to seek things out to improve your character or combat ability and I don't necessarily think that's like a bad thing but I think unfortunately a lot of players are going to miss out on some really cool systems and mechanics simply because they aren't pushed or required to do it in fact if you play the Witcher 3 on normal you probably are going to have an absolute joke of a time in combat if you take the time to learn how to use oils and craft all these carefully calibrated potions and get into alchemy and then you go and you craft the best armor in the game it's it's going to turn into an utter joke but if you play on death march the hardest difficulty it's assuming you're doing all of that and so if you don't do those extra elements and steps then you're going to have a nightmare of a time. But if you are doing it, the game is calibrated perfectly because they built the game assuming that on the higher difficulties, you would be using all of the tools at your disposal. And that's something that I saw with God of War 2018, which was on the hardest difficulty, give me God of War. You had to learn how to properly time your parries. You had to learn how to quick dodge people. You had to learn how to memorize each enemy's attack patterns. And not only did it make the game more challenging, but it also made it a lot more satisfying. And in my opinion, it made it more fun. But that's not how I review games. I don't go through on the hardest difficulty and then yell at everybody for the game being too hard or unbalanced or whatever else. When I review games, I play on the normal difficulty that the developers recommend. And then after the fact, I might go through on a harder difficulty. Frankly, it just doesn't make sense to me to like critique or criticize a game's 
structure or gameplay based on a niche difficulty versus what most players will play on. So first playthrough, went through on normal. That's what I'm going to be referring to when I discuss combat and everything throughout the course of this video. But to put it all simply, people's expectations were really high. There were things that Santa Monica Studio needed to pull off and needed to do in order to satisfy players. Not a ton of crazy stuff. They just needed to do a couple of, you know, box checkings over here and keep players happy over here and maybe throw in a couple of surprises over there. And as long as they did that, I think most of us would have been very, very satisfied. But they did so much more. <laughs> After you watch the story recap, which is only about a minute or two long, you'll start the game. It begins with Kratos holding and gazing at the little sack that sounds weird. <laughs> at the bag, baggy, is that better? At the baggy, his wife's ashes were carried in. Despite my immature giggling about the word sack, it's actually a solemn moment with Kratos reflecting on Faye and what led him here. And real quick, can we just take a moment to praise this like main menu? I love what Santa Monica Studio does here where you just boot up the game and you're in it and then you hit start and the menu fades and you're in the game. I, I love it. I find it so cool. I think it's awesome. Insomniac did a similar thing with the opening of Spider-Man Miles Morales. I, I just think that these sequences are freaking cool. I love it. It makes me feel like we're in the next generation or I guess the current generation, but still, I think it's super awesome. After sitting at the fire for a moment, we see in the distance, a young boy approaching. This was spoiled in the trailers and previews, of course, so it's not gonna surprise anybody when I say that this is Atreus all grown up. He's carrying a deer, which I found to be a cool callback to the beginning of God of War 2018, when Atreus has no freaking idea what he's doing when it comes to hunting, specifically hunting deer. Now we see him, much older and more mature, actually going out and hunting by himself. Kratos was confident enough in his abilities to sit at the fire and stay warm while Atreus went out to collect some game. Already, we feel a dynamic shift has occurred. God of War 2018, in a lot of ways, was about Kratos learning to be a father and also accepting that he can't control everything. And already, in the first two minutes of the game, we see that Kratos and Atreus have reached a new normal. Or at the very least, they're attempting to. If God of War 2018 were all about love and fatherhood and learning how to love this small being that's created in your image, then God of War Ragnarok is about trust, learning to trust that little creature that you created. And also it's about an acceptance of the inevitable and the unknown. You know, over the last like four years since the previous game came out, a lot of us have been stressing out because we knew what was signified at the end of that game. We know that they showed Atreus cradling Kratos in his arms seemingly dead. And over the course of God of War Ragnarok, we're going to hear a lot of dialogue about the inevitability of fate. Atreus and Kratos both know that according to that mural, he's prophesied to die. And in fact, even this opening sequence is a reference to that very reality and the stress and concern tied up within this dynamic. Because you see, they aren't just out hunting, they were out training and then Atreus went and got a deer. We find this out later through some dialogue. And it's told to us over the last few years since the last game occurred, there's been a lot of training going on. In fact, pretty much every waking moment has been spent training and preparing for Ragnarok. Not because Kratos thinks that Atreus is incapable or that he is just terrible at what he does, but rather because Kratos thinks that he is running out of time. And pretty soon Atreus is going to be left all alone and he'll need to be prepared for that and that's why Kratos is constantly training him. 
More on that in a bit. After you get the deer loaded up onto your little sleigh, you both hop on and mush away. Is it mush away? Is it just mush? They go mushing. That's that's what they do. <laughs> they, they mush. I remember that from like some random old movie in the like early 2000s I watched where like this guy goes and he does this like wolf race sled racing thing. And the big plot point was like, you know, mush. I think he was a dentist or his mother was a dentist. I don't know. Somebody in the comments is going to know what movie I'm talking about. It's like I have visions of it occasionally. But point is, I think it's mushing. Go mush, mush. That's what it is. Once they've begun mushing, you take off and the path surviving Fimble Winter begins. This serves as a brief introduction and tutorial on how to use the right stick to look around, left stick to steer, nothing that has never been seen before. You're prompted with the objective, go home, and so you begin doing just that, following along a very narrow path. Soon after, you stop the sled and see in the distance a woman chasing near you. Turns out it's Freya. Once again, this was spoiled in the trailers and the previews, which kind of sucks, but you know what? I guess they had to show something. You see, for some reason, she just can't get over the fact that we murdered her son in front of her. Even though he was trying to kill her, you know, it's complicated, but she just is throwing a fit, and apparently every chance she gets, she tries to kill Kratos and Atreus whenever they leave the protection stave around their home. What ensues is a bizarre, I guess, quick time event. It's not really a boss fight because there's no real threat here. You're not doing damage. You're just trying to escape. But I also like that for narrative reasons because it shows that Kratos and Atreus don't want to fight Freya. She's just angry and in many ways she's trying to jump them but they don't want to hurt her it's it's a really interesting dynamic and it sets the stage for their future interactions over the course of the game the aggression here is obviously very unidimensional the whole time freya keeps attacking you trees falling earthquakes shaking the ground atreus and kratos are just trying to get away get to home within the protection stave where Freya can't come. Even after Freya stabs Kratos directly in the chesticle, he doesn't return it in kind. He just shakes her off and continues racing home. And after she's been knocked off and you race by, she screams out and causes an earthquake to collapse the valley in between you two. It's freaking cool. And honestly, this is about as epic an opening as I could have expected. I mean, I knew that they were going to try to come out swinging in this game, but this was a pretty cool way to do it. I mean, we're not even six minutes into the game, and already it feels like there's been a concerted effort on the part of the developers to make every bit of this game more epic at every possible step. You know that feeling we had with the last game where every time we thought, oh, something cool might happen or it would be cool if this thing happened, Whenever you have that thought in Ragnarok, they do something even cooler than you expected. Frankly, it's a subversion of expectations in a really good way. Normally, we would see this kind of thing in narratives where you expect, you know, oh, this character's gonna die, or everybody's gonna die because of this plot point that you set up. And then something happens, there's sort of a plot twist, and something totally unexpected happens. In Ragnarok, they do a really good job of understanding what players expect to happen, and then taking it up 15 notches beyond that. It's it's frankly really impressive. I don't know how they managed to do that, but you know what? Props. Once you return home, you tie up all of the wolves that helped you explore, and Atreus goes to check on Fenrir, his wolf that he's been raising who's extremely sick. He tries to feed him, but he can't eat, and Kratos warns him that the wolf is dying. After a brief cuddle session, unfortunately, 
Fenrir dies. Now, I don't think I was alone in immediately recognizing the name Fenrir. And so the moment this happened, I watched very, very closely what was going to occur because Fenrir plays a pretty important role in the story of Ragnarok. And even though they certainly are going to try to shake expectations and do things unexpectedly, I think Fenrir is still going to be there at the end time. So to see Fenrir killed off in the first 10 minutes of the game was, was really strange. But an important note is right as Fenrir dies, Atreus whispers something and then we see these orbs, I guess, float out from Fenrir. Specifically, it looks like there's four little orbs that float away out of his mouth. One sticks into Atreus's knife and the other three float off into the sky. I'm sure I don't need to tell you, but that's going to be very important later. Specifically, the one that floated into his knife. Honestly, it's a really good touch. I mean, they didn't have to show this or a visual representation of it. They could have just after the fact said, oh, this thing happened when that happened and ta-da, magic. But no, they actually show it happening and it's a little detail. When you play through the game again, you'll notice, oh, one of the orbs goes to the knife. Interesting. It's going to be important later. Remember that. I mean, I'm going to remind you, so I guess you can forget it if you want. But remember it in theory. <laughs> After Fenrir dies, Atreus asks Kratos if he can go off and bury the wolf. This is in response to Kratos's poorly timed command that they should go train as Atreus cradles his dead Friend. It just reminded me of like that one friend we all had in college when like something really sucky would happen. Then they'd be like, yeah, bro, that sucks. Anyway, you want to go lift? Like, I kid you not, there was one kid in our college house and his Mima, which I'm assuming is his grandma, passed away. This was like right before finals. It was like the worst possible time for this to happen for like a college senior. And it was really sad and depressing. And then one of our friends just turned to him after like 10 seconds of silence and was like, you know, if we went to the gym, it'd probably make you feel better. Exercise is really good for depression. <laughs> it was just like, shut up, <laughs> shut up. Like not the time, dude, calm down. Like I get it, you're like, you're right. Yeah, it's good when you're sad to work out. It gets the endorphins. Yes, you're like technically right, but like, not the time. Chill out. Ask in like half an hour. Just chill out. That's Kratos. Kratos is that jock friend who never shuts up about the gym. That's who he is. But I actually took this as having a slightly more nuanced narrative point to it, not just that Kratos is always sort of socially inept. And that is that Kratos just witnessed his son have somebody close to him, his wolf, his friend, die in his arms. Just like, as far as he knows, he's going to die in Atreus's arms as well. And so in that moment, Kratos sees how devastated Atreus is, but he's reminded of why they've been training and why they've been preparing through Fimblewinter for Ragnarok, because Kratos is going to be that wolf pretty soon. So there's no time to rest or grief. They have to train so that he can make sure Atreus is ready for when that day does in fact come. Or, I mean, maybe Kratos is just a dick. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into it. Let me know what you think in the comments. I don't know. Maybe I'm just reading into it. Okay. Anyway, moving on. Atreus gives Kratos some guff about all of this and then wanders off into the snow with his wolf to give him a proper burial. Kratos tries to be understanding and allow him to do it and returns inside to speak with Mimir. I will just say it is utterly adorable that Mimir reads books using a spoon in his mouth to turn the pages. I don't know why I found this so adorable. I know he's like a very old man and technically just a severed head, but I just thought this was adorable. After this, Kratos lays down on the bed to get some rest while Atreus is burying his friend. Again, another symbol of the trust he has. He's a young man. He can handle himself out there. So 
Kratos tries to catch some Zs. Once he lays down, you see a third arm reach up and cradle his bosom. And no, not that kind of third arm. Chill out, you pervs. <laughs> it looks to be a woman's hand. Immediately, Kratos is alarmed by this, turns over, stands up, and you'll see one of the coolest transitions that we've seen in this series so far has occurred. It's no longer Fimble Winter. Kratos stands up and it looks to be still winter or perhaps spring as the snow begins to melt. But then he turns around and sees none other than Faye. This was a total surprise for me and a lot of other people. I think a lot of us expected Faye to have a role in this game, at least narratively speaking, but it was probably going to be very similar to what they did in the last game where you only ever see her outline and it's just left up to your imagination. But this time around, for whatever reason, they decided to actually show her in these flashback sequences. And honestly, I don't really know what to make of it. I don't think there's a huge benefit to showing Faye, if I'm being completely honest. It does do well and it is useful later in the game during some big, like, emotionally stressful moments to go back and hear Kratos speaking to Faye. But honestly, I kind of like the way they did it in God of War 2018, where Kratos just kind of talks to her out loud, even though there's no one actually there. I found it to be almost sweeter than actually seeing the character in front of me, but that's just my personal preference. I think that this is often a little heavy-handed, and frankly, I don't think these sequences were completely necessary. But again, that's just my humble opinion. It's not like there's a right or wrong answer here. Very quickly, this dream turns into a nightmare, though, as Faye warns him that time is running out and there's nothing much that he can do, as she puts a protection stave on his forehead. The exact same stave that she put on all of the trees including the one that you chopped down in the opening of the last game. Kratos wakes up in a cold sweat, grabs his axe, and sits up, only to be told by Mimir that Atreus still isn't back, even though it's been quite a long while. So you set out to go and look for him. This gives us our first chance to actually control Kratos in a dedicated sequence where we can move around. You can go into the backyard. I don't know if it's a backyard. It kind of looks like a backyard, but there's a bunch of training materials and things set up. You can see that they've been working here in their spare time. It's kind of a nice touch. And you can see that it looks largely unchanged from the first game. I will also say the first thing I noticed during this sequence as well, once I actually got the chance to control Kratos, was that it's almost identical to the last game, except there's been a couple of small tweaks. For one, you'll notice during the first combat sequence that occurs shortly after this sequence begins, that things have been slightly tweaked. Parry timings have been altered, and also there's no dedicated quick turnaround button this time around. In the last game, it was down on the D-pad, but this time around, down on the D-pad just puts your weapons away, even though it will be used later. There's a reason they reserved this button. This time around, instead, to turn around, you have to hold down L1 and tap down on the D-pad, and then you can do the quick turnaround. But this was something, I will be completely honest, that I did not figure out until all the way at the end of the game after I had beaten the final boss fight while I was fighting in Muspelheim, grinding out some uh, higher tier armor. I'm shocked it took me this long to figure it out. It was kind of an accident where I had the shield up and I tapped down on the D-pad to swap weapons. And then I happened to do a quick turnaround. I was like, oh, well, crap. <laughs> So that's how you do it. I got through the whole game never using it, not because I didn't want to use it, because I didn't think it was here. And uh, so I think that could have been perhaps communicated a little more clearly because I don't remember seeing a tutorial for this. Maybe it was there and I just ignored it. But I, I do find it really funny that I got through the whole game not realizing that this 
movement mechanic was even there. Everything else is basically the same with R1 and R2 attacks. You're able to throw the axe with L2 combined with R1 or R2. You can double tap L1 to do a shield break on enemies who are postured up in defensive stances. And altogether, it feels just as solid as the last game, though largely unchanged. I will say fighting these raiders who are actual humans you will notice very quickly that there is a lot more gore this time around. Dismemberments, beheadings, cutting people in half all over the place here. It was present in God of War 2018, but you didn't really fight people in that game. You fought specters and monsters and creatures and hellwalkers, but you didn't really fight human beings filled with blood. But seriously, the first time you engage in combat, you'll be blown away at just how sticky and gooey a lot of these finishers are. It's pretty dramatic. You'll also notice that Kratos defaults to his previous armor set, which is just a basic one, and the Leviathan Axe has also returned to its basic loadout. Any alterations or improvements you made to armor or equipment at the end of the last game, regardless of how many times you grinded out those Muspelheim or Niflheim trials, all of that is lost. And I saw some people complaining about this, like on TikTok and Twitter. People like, oh, all the progress I worked so hard for, like, come on, you ruined it. I'm so sad. I don't, I mean, come on, it's a sequel. They had to find some way to keep it going. And the only way that you have any progression in this game is if you start weak and end up way stronger than you started, right? So if you started with the armor that you finished the last game in, they would have to make it feel utterly bland in comparison to the stuff that you get at the end of this game. So the only perk to it would be like maybe particular uh, cosmetic benefits or perhaps just like elemental effects and like character build outs and things. But all of that is probably better served by just starting you at ground zero and forcing you to restart. I know it's not the most realistic thing. I know it's not grounded. I get it. It would be more consistent if they just let you like carry forward your save and then it imported all of that. But I mean, come on, it's a video game. It's just one of those video game things you got to get past. But one thing that is new now is that you can charge up your weapons with different abilities. So for the Leviathan Axe, you can hold down triangle to inflict a frost effect on it or the Blades of Chaos. You can hold down triangle to inflict burning. And I actually thought this was pretty interesting and cool. As the game goes on, you can also upgrade these abilities through skills to have all sorts of different effects, maybe explosive impact. You could set it so it increases the runic effect of it or perhaps increases the stun effect of of the charged ability, all sorts of cool combinations. But all that being said, it's a really good introduction to the combat system and it feels like a nice refresher for people who haven't gone back and played God of War 2018 recently, or at least right before this game. You run through the snow following footprints and eventually a blood trail because you find a very dead bear on the ground and a blood trail leading away from it. Worried that this is Atreus bleeding out and trying to find shelter, you start following that into a cave system filled with raiders. You fight your way through, looting as you go along, and eventually climb out into a clearing. After a brief moment of respite and quiet as Kratos calls out for Atreus, you're jumped by a freaking gigantic bear. And this constitutes the first actual boss fight of the game. Honestly, it didn't feel bad. I thought that it actually worked pretty well. It reminded me, at least in terms of the arena, of the original boss fight against Baldur. But it did immediately remind me of one of my biggest frustrations of God of War 2018, and that was the extremely narrow FOV. When you're locked onto an enemy like Bjorn, who moves around a lot and can zip past you very quickly, 
quickly, the camera movements can often be pretty exaggerated. And at times when you unlock the camera, it's probably even going to be difficult to keep track of what's going on since the field of view is so small. This could be easily fixed by either increasing the FOV or backing the camera up a little bit, but this is apparently a technical restraint because widening the FOV requires more items to be loaded on screen at any given time, therefore decreasing performance. And since this game also released on the base PS4 from 2013, they're a little limited in what they can do. It's not a game breaking issue by any stretch of the imagination, but it is something that I found very annoying. And while this is one of the worst defenders of it, it's certainly a problem that carries through in the rest of the game. There was also a moment where the bear froze completely still for a solid three to five seconds while I just unloaded on it. I think this was either a bug or some sort of AI issue where it just stalled out or thought it couldn't move or something. I don't know, but it was really weird and it didn't really feel fair. It felt like I was cheating. But after you defeat the bear and complete the finisher, Kratos goes and grabs it in a chokehold and begins to suffocate the ever-living crap out of its skull. As he does this, the bear begins to transform. And this is where we see the first signs that Atreus is actually Loki because he's the bear. You see, Atreus is the one that killed the bear we saw on the path. Apparently, he was overrun with emotions when Fenrir died, and as a result, he transformed and has no memory of it. Panicked as a bear, he started running through the cave system, attacking different raiders, and then ended up in this clearing when Kratos came, which led to the fight that ensued. At this point, we're like 35 minutes into the game, and we've already had a pretty epic boss fight, We've had the introductory sequence, which was pretty epic with Freya. We've had a combat tutorial and everything. And honestly, I'm really enjoying it at this point. It feels like they're clipping along at a good pace. Maybe they were just trying to like get things going quickly and then they were going to slow down. It's common for games like this to front load. But you know what? I was having a good time. I was very optimistic at this point. After all of this happens, Kratos is understandably very concerned about Atreus. In the last game, Atreus regularly couldn't control his rage and would consistently freak out, causing all sorts of problems. It seems like over the last few years, as they've trained, this has settled down a fair amount, but it looks as though it's back and stronger than ever with him fully transforming into different creatures. But exhausted, they decide to return home. As they head back, Atreus repairs the protection stave around their home, which was damaged by the raiders and the bear that came into their land. And right after, we see two baby cubs crying because their mother is dead. <laughs> this is the other thing they do. Like, in the first 45 minutes of the game, they've killed off a wolf in a really sad way, and then two small bear cubs are crying because their mother is dead and they're probably also going to die. It's just, you know, they're coming for the feels coming out swinging on this one, you know? Oh, and it's working. Because, I mean, there's nothing you can do. I mean, do you think Kratos is going to get, like, a baby bottle and nurse these things to full size? No, he's just going to be like, well, sucks to suck. Go die in the woods, I guess. Like, <laughs> just, yeah, it sucks. My son killed your mom. I'm sorry. <laughs> Can't do anything about it. Uh, I'm just going to skip past this part. I don't want to talk about it. It's sad. It makes me sad. The poor cubs didn't do anything wrong, you know? They, they just were living, and then their mom's dead. In the next arena over, you have a combat sequence with Atreus, during which you get introduced and acclimated to what are called the companion arrows. This immediately made me very curious as to what the future of the game held. Because in God of War 2018, they just refer to this as Atreus's arrows. But in this game, they call them companion arrows. So immediately, I was very interested 
I'm compelled by this because there's no reason to call it companions unless there's going to be companions other than just Atreus. Because if the companion is just Atreus, why not just call it Atreus? And sure enough, I was, uh, <laughs> I was right, but we'll get to that in, in just a little bit. But setting that aside for now, the crew returns home. They go inside, lay down to get some rest, and because they can't have any nice things, there's immediately a knock at the door. Pretty soon, wind starts howling, thunder starts blasting, lightning strikes come in through the ceiling, and as Kratos opens the door, he sees the man, the myth, the legend himself, Thor. A lot of you guys will probably remember the true ending at the end of God of War 2018. This was once you returned home after completing the main quest. If you did so, went to sleep, you would then wake up in a dream sequence, basically, where Thor was outside the door and uh, you would see a reveal of Mjolnir and it was like a cool thing. Oh, look, oh, they're going to do it in the next game. You're going to fight Thor. This is that moment. Now, the following scene is utterly tremendous and I love it dearly. I think it is one of the best written opening scenes within the first like hour of a video game that I can think of in the last 10 years. It really is that good. I mean, it's right up there with the opening scene of The Last of Us from 2013. I just freaking love it. I think it's masterfully done. It's witty. It's funny. It's balanced well. It has narrative implications for the whole story while also tying in themes from the previous game. Across the board, it's utterly tremendous it's so good so instead of trying to surmise it i'm just going to let it play so sit back enjoy because this is great what was that the ball company. Oh, I'm sure we'll find lots to talk about.
should have told me before I poured. Why are you here? Uh, just uh, being polite. You seem like a calm and reasonable person. Are you? A calm and reasonable person. If the moment calls for calm. I'd say the moment calls for calm. <laughs> yeah. Back before winter set in, there were some misunderstandings. Regrettable ones. But I think we all have a better idea of who we're dealing with. Now, what you did to his boys. Self-defense. Dying is what we Aesir live for. And let's be honest, they were kind of useless. But Balder. He had value. He was my best tracker, my closer. Yeah, his mind was gone, sure. But he had his uses, and now he's gone because of you. You follow me? You have a debt. And you're no fun anymore. What do you want? How about peace? How does peace strike the esteemed, retired god of war? How about we just don't kill each other? How about you stay home, kick up your feet, seek no quarrel with me, and I'll have none with you? Of course, it means that that one, that one has to stop his search for tear. Yeah. We know what you've been up to. Stop it. Tears old ways are dead. He is dead. You understand? And then that's it. Then we're square. Shit, I'll even sweeten the deal. I'll let you keep the prisoner that I know you stole. <laughs> that's right. I know you're in here somewhere, you silver-tongued little shit. Why should we believe a word of you? What of your promises ever been worth? There he is, my old partner in crime. He's lost weight. If he tells you snow is white, he's lying. What kind of wisdom is that? Can't the smartest head alive see past himself? See that we all want the same thing? All right. 
Here's a deal I know you can trust. I'll settle your debt with my ex. Keep Freya off your back. Keep your boy safe. That's really all you want, isn't it? So what do you say? Take all day. It's just masterfully done across the board. Not only is it epic in scale with the beginning of the Thor boss fight, but it's also a fascinating introduction to Odin and to Thor himself. And it helps you realize that there are forces at play here beyond Kratos and Atreus' control. They had that protection stave up. They repaired it right before they went into their house and it didn't matter at all to the Allfather or the God of Thunder. It just didn't matter. I also wanna mention that Odin's introduction here is way more interesting than I was expecting. Because during the entirety of the last game, we hear about Odin and how cruel and evil and maniacal and vindictive he is. And then we see him here for the first time and he's actually somewhat charming and charismatic. And honestly, he seems to be one of the most level heads in the room. He's offering a truce and a treaty between Kratos and everybody else. All he says is, hey, you stop your search for Tyr, you're not going to find anything, and you're causing trouble, so stop that. And you, stop killing my sons and cousins and daughters and all that. Just stop. Stop it. Okay, no more bloodshed. We'll live happily. At least we'll get through Ragnarok and we'll deal with it. And there's a lot of, like, double and triple bluffs going on in this dialogue that we'll get to as we continue through the story. But I found this to be just a tremendous alteration on the idea of Odin because they could have very easily just done the played out thing of Odin big bad scary man who's evil and mean kind of like what they did with Zeus in the original trilogy of God of War games but instead this time around they do something a little more nuanced and time and time again every time Odin comes on screen you'll start to question and ask yourself is he actually the bad guy like he seems pretty chill and cool like he doesn't seem like the bad guy and that's exactly what Odin wants you to think. That's exactly what all of this is designed to do. He is deceptive. He is 
smooth and devonair, and it's just so good. It's so good. Also, Thor is freaking hilarious. I, I freaking love him. Like when he tells Mimir that he's lost weight, that's great. This is yet another instance of sort of subverting expectations because I went into this looking at the leak of Odin that came out before the game launched, which was basically, it looks like Odin as he appears in the final game, but in a different costume effectively. He seems much more gaunt and, and scary and, and broken and thin and gross. And then Thor, I think a lot of us expect, you know, kind of a, a big, bad, brawly man. But there's nuance here that's far more interesting. Odin having charisma and again being sort of suave is not something I expected, even though after seeing it, it makes perfect sense. I think it's a tremendously unique way of approaching the character uh, and, and the, the god as he's been retold and, and uh, presented in mythology for, at this point, centuries and centuries and centuries. And Thor is not actually just like the big strong brawly man. He actually has some nuance to his character. He's a family man. He doesn't want to disappoint his family. And he tries very, very hard to do what's right while also living under the thumb of his father. In fact, some of the sequences with Thor that we'll reach later in the game are some of my favorite. It's fascinating how they managed to take these characters that we thought we knew, whether it's through Marvel movies, as cringe as that is, or just through like high school studies of the mythology involved here. But they took the characters we thought we knew and do something unique with them that still feels true to the source material. And I think that that is utterly remarkable. Now, as you saw, we get knocked into Tyr's temple and begin a boss fight against Thor. It's pretty straightforward, and the entire time Thor is taunting Kratos, asking him to show him the real god of war that he's heard so much about, and that's responsible for killing his sons. And he actually gets a taste of it, specifically in this moment where Kratos recalls the Leviathan axe and jams it straight into his gut. And there's actually a really, really good detail here that I've seen some people talk about on Twitter and like on YouTube and Reddit and stuff. So I'm not going to pretend to be the one that like discovered this or anything. There's some fantastic like detectives online, but uh, there's, there's a really good detail here as to why this wound doesn't heal throughout the course of the game. Because every time you see Thor for the rest of this game, he has that cut in his gut, which doesn't really make sense. The Aesir gods should be able to like just heal it. Like they heal every other wound from being punched and attacked like this. So why is it that this attack from the ax doesn't heal? Is it just like an oopsie on the part of the writers? No, 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 no. It's actually something that they set up four years ago in God of War 2018. As you see here in this clip from when we streamed the game recently, when the axe is spat out by the World Serpent after you offer it to it, you see a little prompt in the top right that says, Aetir imbued. This is very important, and it's something that I don't think many people really thought about at the time that the game came out. I think it was just like an excuse probably for the developers to be like, oh yeah, this is why this axe can like harm gods that you fight because basically what it is is an old Norse term for poison more specifically according to the greatest source on the internet wikipedia it says that it's produced by snakes such as gilfanginning i think when it's dripped on loki by a snake placed above him in Scouty, Scouty, I don't know. Or when it's blown by Jormungandir during Ragnarok, leading to the death of Thor, according to the classic tale, as as it's been told. So what they've done here is they actually tweak the lore a little bit, take this little tidbit that this poison is produced by Jormungandir, and they just changed it. So now the poison is imbued 
in the axe that Kratos uses, which is why he can actually injure Thor. It's little attention to detail like this that makes subsequent run-throughs of the game feel so great and like uh, just a joy because every time you think, I wonder if they took that into consideration. I wonder if that ties back in. They did. There are so many little details like this that are just tremendous. You know, you think initially, oh, well, that's probably just an oopsie on the part of the devs. They just kept the scar there to remind players that he and Thor fought or something. But no, four years ago, they set up why that would happen and it all ties together. It's it's so cool to me. Props, Santa Monica Studio, props. Now the fight continues with Thor out in the Lake of Nine, just outside of Tyr's temple. I feel like I should also note that in the process of being thrown all this way by Thor, he smashed into the statue of Tyr on the way down into the temple. As a result, pieces of that statue were scattered all around the Lake of Nine, and it's actually a side quest later in the game for you to go around and collect little bits and pieces from there and that can be used to craft an armor set called the guiding light set which actually is one of my favorite sets in the entire game if i'm being completely honest i actually recommend that you try playing the game with this armor set as soon as you can get it it is a level five armor set so it's not one you're meant to get until a little bit later in the game but it's very very strong and what makes it really interesting is that it actually is a strength and luck armor set which is not what i think most players will try using in their first run through though it is pretty fun you see the closest one you could compare it to is probably the lunda armor set which you can get by running around in the river systems of vanaheim uh just collecting it randomly that set is great it's just kind of a standard sturdy armor set but this guiding light set swaps out the defensive stats and the runic stats for luck stats combined with strength, which basically just means that it's like a min-max high-risk, high-reward type of armor set, which makes it really fun to play with against difficult enemies or the Muspelheim Trials and everything like that. It's not necessarily the easiest armor set to use, but when it works, ooh, it feels great. This is primarily because once you have the whole kit enabled, you'll unlock Fortune Strike and Weapon Blessing, which include moderate luck chance on any hit to increase the strength, runic, and luck of one of Kratos's weapons, which have the effects of melee attacks having a luck chance to critically strike, creating a damaging explosion that can affect other enemies as well, and moderate luck chance on any hit to increase increase the strength, runic, and luck of one of Kratos's weapons, respectively. We'll talk more about armor sets and how they structure this whole system within combat and the RPG mechanic, basically, uh, towards the end of the video. But for now, I'll just say Guiding Light, it's a great set. It's one you get as a direct result of this fight and the tier statue being scattered all over the Lake of Nine. And uh, I like it. It also looks cool. So, I mean, look at this thing. It's badass. I also have to mention that in this boss fight, there's one of the coolest fourth wall breaks that I've had in a game probably since The Last of Us Part Two, when Ellie goes up to the workbench and is jumped in the middle of a menu while crafting. It just makes you feel like, okay, I'm never safe. They can like come even when I'm safe in a menu. It's just super badass. But look at this, watch this. Oh no, I say when we're done. <laughs> I'm not leaving till I see the real you. I mean, they fake you out. He kills you, you're in the menu, and then he brings you back to life because he's not done with you. It's so cool. I love it. It's these kind of like think outside the box moments that just make games so fun and so cool. I got like, I actually giggled out loud. I got giddy when this happened. I was sitting right here 
playing the game right here while like I can't let anybody see it because we're in like review embargo and it's like dark and I've got all the recording stuff going and I'm just playing and then this happened I was like I thought I button mashed enough oh well and I set the controller down and I, I sit back and then that happens and I was like oh my god that's awesome it was so cool I love it but after a hard-fought battle everything settles down and Thor feels satisfied that he's actually seen what you're capable of doing and I'll I'll just let that last little bit play to let it sizzle. This is the god that murdered a pantheon because they hurt his feelings. I see why my sons fell to you. Even this lesser version of you. But I am not my sons. And your boy, Allfather, has plans for him. Consider your blood debt paid. Be seeing you. And really good detail here. Um, when Thor pulls out the tooth and throws it on the ground, that's actually like an actual in-game item. You can actually see that in the game. You can see like in this re-uploaded TikTok that somebody did, you can actually look on the ground and find the tooth sitting there. And it's an actual like in-game item that lands on the ice and stays there for the rest of the game, which is just kind of kind of funny. <laughs> I don't know, it's just a good touch. And just like that, we've completed the first hour of the game. We've already had a couple of pretty epic boss fights. We've had the opening sequence with Freya where there's like earthquakes and ground transformation and deformation and stuff that's super cool. There's been a couple of really important narrative beats. There's been one of the coolest cutscenes in gaming in a hot minute just in terms of writing and performances. It's utterly tremendous. And again, we're only an hour in. At this point, I was just all out giddy. I was all in. Because at the end of God of War 2018, I just wanted more. I wanted more badass moments, more witty dialogue, more epic sequences, more boss fights. I just wanted more. And this time around, they're coming right out the gate within the first hour and they're throwing so much at you, it can almost feel overwhelming. But again, we need to maintain a level head just because I'm super pumped about it at this point doesn't mean that they're gonna maintain this same level moving forward. It's very common for games to front load all the coolest stuff and then the last half of it is just like utter garbage, right? So we need to not get too excited, but at the very least right now at this moment, I was, I was pretty impressed. Now, right after the boss fight is over, Brock and Sindri come to collect you and take you back to your house. They know that the Allfather has been there talking with Atreus in the time since you've been fighting Thor. So they know you need to get back there. You race home, go inside, and are greeted by Atreus, who seems perfectly fine. When Kratos asks him what Odin wanted, he simply says that he wanted to pay for the roof damage that Thor caused when he came to the house initially. He then says that he was invited to Asgard by Odin. This immediately brings up a lot of questions. Why does Odin want Atreus to go to Asgard? What does he have that he needs? 
clearly he must have some knowledge that Loki is going to be involved in Ragnarok. So maybe he's trying to get ahead of it by bringing his enemies closer and keeping him within the fold so he can keep an eye on him. There's got to be some ulterior motive here. But Atreus seems aware of this and he told the Allfather no. And this clears the way for Kratos to express his distrust and disdain for the actions that Atreus has been taking. This goes back to the search for Tyr that he's been engaging in over the last few years. You see, Atreus seems to think that Tyr is still alive, but rather being held prisoner instead of having been actually killed by Odin years ago. He believes he has evidence that can demonstrate this fact, and he believes that Tyr could be of a great help to them in the inevitable case that Ragnarok comes to their front doorstep. So trying to be understanding, Kratos agrees to let Atreus show him what he's found and what's going on. Though it's important to note that at this point, he's very distrustful and he thinks that there's something Atreus is not telling him, which is true. There's a lot of things that Atreus doesn't tell Kratos because he thinks that Kratos is not going to want to hear it or won't be understanding and vice versa. As I mentioned earlier, Kratos saw the mural at the end of the last game showing that he dies in Atreus's arms. But you see, he hasn't told Atreus that and he hasn't told him because he wants to prepare him and he doesn't want him to constantly fight fate or to try and, and prevent this from happening, which would just cause it to happen in the end. This whole game, there's constant miscarriage communication and it's usually tied up in a lack of trust between the characters. Again, if the last game was about parenthood and fatherhood and loving and caring and everything, this game is about trust and embracing who you are and, and what you need to do to become the best person you can be. But before they can set out on this adventure, they know that they have to find a place to rest for the night that isn't their home because now they know it's not safe. There's raiders all around. The protection staves are really finicky at this point, and they know that Thor and Odin are not at all limited by those protection staves. So at this point, they go out to stay at Sindri's house with him. And this is the first time you're actually introduced to the equipment system. There are a few different play styles that can be used with these armor sets. The way I broke it down was a strength build that focuses on damage, a runic build combined with cooldown to increase the frequency with which you can use the runic abilities, a defense and vitality build, which basically makes you into a tank, or a luck build combined with any of the above. As I mentioned earlier, the guiding light armor set is focused on strength and luck, but you can combine different pieces of different armor sets to make like a luck and defense armor set or a luck and vitality armor set if you want. Now, initially, I didn't actually think that this system was very robust. In fact, while I played through the game for review, I wasn't actually that thrilled with how different each of these build outs felt. They certainly look different. The armor sets, some of them look badass, others look frankly, kind of underwhelming, but all told other than the vitality stat, which actually shows a marked increase on your health meter, there wasn't anything that really felt as though it made a really impactful difference in actual gameplay. However, this completely changed once I finished the main story and started going through some of the secondary content in the end game. This is when the armor actually starts to have a real impact and you start to get very specialized builds. It's unfortunate that it took so long for this to take place because I feel as though you probably should be able to put these armor sets through their paces by the time you fight the final boss. But on the normal difficulty, you can get through the end of the game easily with a level six and possibly a level five Kratos. But from all of my testing and with all of the hours I've spent in Muspelheim and other places grinding out endgame content, 
I would actually say that like around level seven to eight is when the armor sets really start to feel heavily differentiated where you can put one on and when you're actually in combat, it feels totally different to a different set. Now I do have to clarify that of course there are some people who will go through this game and will grind out every little side bit of content before they take on the final boss. So they'll have the level eight, level nine gear by the time they actually go and, and have the final boss fight take place. That's true for some people, absolutely. My friend Michael, hi Michael. He has, as of today, still not finished the game, but he's put in 50 going on 60 hours, grinding through all of the side content, completing all of the Muspelheim challenges, everything that the game has to offer. And then he's going to do the end quest. It's going to be a total joke and he's going to like one shot everybody. But you know what? To each their own. As I said at the top of the video, I try very hard to play these games and to critique them from the point of view of the average consumer. Michael, I love dearly, but he's not the average consumer. I think most people will play through the story at what feels like a natural pace, doing some side content, some end game stuff, but they'll finish the game and then the end game stuff will come in the end game after the end of the game you know like, like that's what it's for <laughs> but all of this just to say that unfortunately the different loadouts and builds that you can make they don't really get differentiated until the higher levels where those stats become very extreme if you have a vitality build out for example its stats are going to be pretty in line with the defense loadout or even the luck and defense loadout until those pieces have been upgraded to level six seven eight nine once you've gotten to those points the stats are differentiated enough that they actually start to feel like very unique armor sets that have their own unique applications and this is when the combat system is at its best and it's just unfortunate that it took so long to get there but once you there it feels great when i was grinding out the muspelheim challenges i actually noticed that for some of the challenges one armor set was better than the other for some of them i needed more health because there were tons of like flying effects coming at me that i couldn't always dodge so having a defense build with high vitality was also really beneficial whereas for other like the boss rush challenge I just needed DPS. I needed to focus on critical hits or maybe stuns. So I would change out the loadout of my companion and then I would go in there and I would tweak out my armor settings so that I would use the guiding light set, which is like a strength and luck build. So I could actually do the min max high critical damage with, you know, if I take a couple hits, I'm going to get hurt, but I'll focus on just dealing as much damage as I can. And that was when the combat felt the most fun. And honestly, it's why I think those challenges in the end game didn't feel sucky they actually felt pretty good but beyond armor we also have all sorts of attachments for our weapons whether it's the axe the blades of chaos or the things that we'll get access to later which we'll discuss at that point again these all are pretty much interchangeable at least until they start to get to level five six seven eight once you get to there they actually have a marked difference it's unfortunate it takes that long, but what are you going to do? One nice change I do have to reference is the ability to tweak the Spartan Rage ability. So in the last game, it was always this ability called Fury, which is where you double tap both of the sticks and then Kratos goes all crazy and just beats things up with his fists. And every time he hits, he gets a little bit of health back. It's a pretty straightforward thing. Very God of War. It makes sense. This time around, you can actually tweak this and change out Spartan abilities for different ones. Some of them might be able to give you a quick burst of healing. Others might be able to 
slow time or allow you to focus one big attack on one enemy. It's a nice change. I ended up just using the Fury ability most of the time, if I'm being honest. Even fully upgraded, I felt like the healing ability didn't do much to actually justify its own existence. So I just ended up using the regular Fury ability. But it is nice to be able to change it because there are times where the Fury ability wasn't that useful in regular combat. We also get introduced to the skill trees at this point. You'll have different trees for each of your companions, the Axe, the Blades of Chaos, everything. These can be purchased with XP and certain abilities can also be disabled if you don't like the effects that they have. I never turned off any effects. Maybe I'm missing something, but I, I just never ran into a situation where I was like, that's annoying. I'm going to turn that thing off. I guess it's nice to have here if you really hate accidentally doing a certain combo a lot. Uh, maybe that's a bad thing for some people. But for me, whenever I accidentally made something happen, I was like, "Ooh, cool. <laughs> maybe I'm a simpleton. Maybe I just don't get it. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just not cut out for this. But like, seriously, I don't I don't feel like I ever like needed to do that but I, you know what it's not for me it's not a feature for me it's for someone else one thing i'll say about this is that it's not really a skill tree if i'm being real by the time i beat the final boss i had literally unlocked all but six of these items and those items were all tied behind one weapon that I hadn't happened to have found the full upgrade items for at that point uh because it's tied up in some side content but that was all I was missing. And so it doesn't feel quite right to me to call it a skill tree if all players will end up in exactly the same place. Like it's just a skill line or it's it's like, hold on, I'm going to get MS Paint. I did this with Assassin's Creed Valhalla actually, and I think it demonstrates the point just fine. Like a skill tree would be if we had multiple destinations, maybe each of these X's represents like a different play style, like high damage, high defense, maybe high luck stats, high vitality, whatever, whatever it may be. A skill tree would mean that each player can like go about selecting different abilities along the way and then they'll end up in one of those spots. Hold on, let's just sprinkle in abilities along the way. There, I'm a master at MS Paint. So that's one player's journey to that playstyle, right? As they go along the skill tree, they select different options and it leads them to that location. This player goes and along the way, they're like bouncing between these and they're having a good time, but they end up over at this playstyle. That's what you would expect a, a skill tree to do, right? Like you can end up in different spots based on what you choose, but at the end, players will end up on a different branch of the tree. Well, if we just divide this here, in God of War Ragnarok, it's just this. So you have starting destination where players begin, you have the ending destination where players will end, and every single player will take a slightly different path through the uh, skill tree, if you call it that. But no matter what, they're all going to end up in the same location. They might take a slightly different route, but along the way, they, they end up in the same spot. At this point, they're in different spots on the skill tree. They might have different abilities, different things they can do. At this point, they're very different. At this point, they're very different. But they all end up in the same spot at the end because eventually you just have so much XP you have to spend it on something so you just end up fully upgrading all of your abilities because you have nothing else to spend it on. It's one of my frustrations with games nowadays where it seems like every title feels the need to have like an action RPG built within it but very few of those games actually know how to do it like Elden Ring 
total skill tree, totally different and unique. Your character is going to be completely different than all of these other characters based purely on the choices you have. And every single one of those builds or almost every single one of those builds is just as viable as the next. This is not an RPG. This is just like faux RPG mechanics where you feel as though you're doing something along the way, upgrading skills and stuff. But really, it's just hard-gated abilities that everybody's going to unlock at roughly the same point in time through their playthrough. But setting all of that aside, in a last-minute decision before going off to Sindri's house, the crew, Kratos, Atreus, and Mimir decide to go out and see what Atreus has been up to in his search for Tyr. Along the way, there's some combat challenges. There's a fight against a mini-boss called the Huntress. She's a scary centaur with glowing horns. And while I didn't find her overly difficult, I did like to see yet another unique boss presented to us. At this point, I was pretty confident that there would be regularized, mini boss fights throughout the entire game that were unique and and not trolls. <laughs> I will say there are trolls in the game. I can think of like two or three instances of them. I think everyone that I'm thinking of were all side content. So they they went like a full 180 on that. They were all too aware that people did not want to see more trolls in this game so they they tried very hard to buck that trend which i can appreciate you fight your way off to one of the shrines that you actually saw in the last game but this time atreus puts his hands on it and a door reveals itself upon opening the door you actually see a shrine that tells a story that was hidden from everybody's view initially this is basically a prophecy meant exclusively for giants. There's a lot of stuff shown in these prophecies, like the moon being stolen, Ragnarok beginning, but the key takeaway is that Tyr appears to be present in this prophecy by the giants, which would suggest that he's not actually dead by Odin's hands. Both Kratos and Mimir are a little skeptical, though this certainly is quite compelling that Tyr may in fact still be alive if the giants hid this prophecy away from Odin all this time. And this sets up one of the major premises of the story, and that is that Odin has been preparing for Ragnarok according to incorrect prophecies. These prophecies were the ones that the giants presented to everybody, but the true prophecy is often a little bit different than what was presented clearly, which should start to raise eyebrows that maybe that prophecy of Kratos dying in Atreus' arms was just one such example of a prophecy that Odin was planning on that isn't actually the case. After exiting the shrine, Atreus also shows one more thing that he found that we actually saw him holding during the opening sequence of the game. It seems to be a small marble looking thing that Mimir immediately comments looks to be of giant construction. These will be important later, but basically Atreus says that he found it in a shrine while he was looking around for clues relating to Tyr. Kratos immediately catches that he said other shrines, and it's at this point that he realizes that Atreus has not just gone to this shrine, but rather that he's been to all of them in Midgard, which Atreus readily admits. Atreus also accidentally lets it slip that Sindri has been helping Atreus hunt these shrines down, secretly behind Kratos' back. This sets up a little friendship between Sindri and Atreus that we haven't actually gotten to witness too much, though we'll get to see references to it later and it's going to come up time and time again throughout the game. But I found this to be a really cool touch that, you know, things have not just been sitting stagnant during Fimblewinter. Things have been moving, their relationships have changed. While Brock has seemingly been off doing his own thing, Sindri has been working with Atreus through this period of time, at least recently, to hunt down clues with regards to Tyr's presence, which I just find to be 
cool. I, I like it as a good touch. You know, these characters have continued to grow even off screen, though I'm sure I don't need to say Kratos isn't that thrilled about this. However, trying to be an understanding father, Kratos agrees to go and seek out Tyr, specifically to go to Svartalheim and see if Tyr is being imprisoned in the big mine that's there since it's home to the dwarves. But he only agrees to do this after saying that they need to go home and having a brief conversation with Mimir once you've gained a little space between yourself and Atreus. This is also a really cool dynamic that was hinted at in the last game, but we didn't see it play out super heavily. That is specifically that Mimir and Kratos can talk together like adults as to what they should do, especially with regards to Atreus. Mimir looks at Atreus almost like a nephew or perhaps a brother. And that creates a really interesting dynamic between Kratos, Mimir, and Atreus, where they can all share information and ideas between each other, and sometimes they keep things hidden from each other. But in moments like these, it's actually pretty cool to hear Mimir tell Kratos certain things that he probably needs to hear, such as trusting Atreus, at least for the time being, so that he doesn't push him away farther. At times it feels as though they're both working to parent Atreus, or at the very least, Kratos is seeking out Mimir's advice regularly. And it's in one of these conversations where Mimir encourages Kratos to actually allow Atreus to lead them to where he thinks Tyr may be imprisoned. So Kratos agrees and decides to let Atreus lead them to Svartalheim to look for Tyr. Though the deal is that if they do not find Tyr, this search will end full stop. They will go stay with Sindri or go back home, continue training and preparing for Ragnarok. The crew goes to Sindri's home. They talk with Brock and Sindri. After a brief reunion, Kratos drops off his shield with Brock to be repaired since it was broken in the fight with Thor. And then you speak with Sindri, who's preparing a device to allow you to travel between realms without having to go to the big chamber within Tyr's temple in the center of the Lake of Nine. And this is really important because Svartal is not actually reachable using those means, so they have to think a little bit outside the box. So using this new device and Mimir's head, they're able to imprint on these doors all of these runes, which will allow you to travel freely between the realms without having to go to the big travel table like in the last game. I freaking love this. I initially thought the travel room was cool, though it got really annoying, especially in the end game when you started bouncing between places. It just was more tedious than it needed to be. So to see that they actually were aware of that, acknowledged it, and then made an active concerted effort to improve it is really cool to see. And this works way better. I think the travel room was cool in the last game, but, you know, it, it kind of played out. So... This time around, they just totally bypass it and they went with the door instead, and I think it works way better. Now you just walk up to the door, you hold up a little rock thing, and then you can select which realm you want to travel to using all of these different Idrisel seeds that you've collected, which allow you access to the different realms. With this, we're able to travel to Svartalhelm and begin our search for Tyr. This will mark the first major slowdown that the game has to offer, and it was bound to happen, but this is where levels start to resemble that of God of War 2018 for the majority of its runtime, where there are areas you just need to get through. There's a bunch of enemies you fight through. Then you move on to the next area. There's a puzzle you have to solve. And then you move on to the next area, more enemies, and you rinse and repeat for like 45 minutes until the next story beat happens. It's fine, but with how fast paced the first hour and a half has been of this game, this really felt like a brick wall that we blasted into at 45 miles an hour. And it was a little 
startling if I'm being entirely honest, but you know what? It's fine. We needed to slow down. I don't know if it's a criticism of this sequence or just praise of the previous ones that this felt so slow in comparison, but I felt like I should mention it. Over the course of the next 20 to 30 minutes, you'll solve a bunch of puzzles, complete a bunch of combat challenges, collect some loot as you push in towards the city. Once there, you'll notice that there are a lot of citizens here, but they're all hiding within their houses seemingly not wanting to talk to you. In the town square, we can meet with Sindri and get access to a new ability for Atreus, which is a different effect for his arrows, which will allow us to blow up these green glowy things. This is also the moment where you start to notice one of the strengths of God of War's level design, and that is that they lock within these levels a bunch of very specific areas which are tied to certain elemental or runic abilities or weapon abilities that you don't have yet. Initially, it can be a little frustrating because you'll see a chest in the distance and you're like, ooh, I want whatever's in that, that looks cool but once you go there you'll realize you can't get into it because you don't have whatever special arrow you need you don't have the weapon ability to throw the spear into the wall and climb it whatever it may be and it can again be frustrating but long term it's actually a net positive because it gives you a reason to return to these levels later re-explore them with all of your newfound abilities and, and capabilities and discover all the loot that you missed initially. Sure, I could complain about it and be like, oh, well, you know, it sucks because they're just reusing levels, but I don't really see it as reusing. It's just adding depth to the levels. Like, yeah, they could strip all that stuff out, have it be very like flat and one dimensional, but instead they have multiple layers of it. There are multiple puzzles tied within these levels once you have all of these different abilities to combine together. I, I really like it and I, Initially, I found it frustrating, but by the time I got to the end of the game, I actually found it pretty cool because I had a reason to return to these levels that I hadn't been to in 20, 30 hours of gameplay, and I actually found it to be kind of cool to return to them, though initially I was frustrated. But with that, we need our regularly scheduled coffee break to get more coffee because these videos are long and take a lot of work. So please like the video if you're enjoying it so far and subscribe and stuff. I'm, I'm going to be right back. Give me a second. And we're back. I had to go outside, check the mail and everything. Thank God I had my Luke Stevens official embroidered beanie. And I also could have worn my 16 times the detail beanie as well if I felt so inclined. 16 times the detail. Yeah, see that? See that? The soundboard's coming in handy. Now, as I said, the crew has gone to Svartalheim to look for Tyr, but they were told by Sindri and Bro that there was actually somebody there that might be able to help them, somebody by the name of Durlin. They imply that this is one of their cousins, though not really, it just sounds like it's somebody close to the family who they know of. You'll explore around a bit through Svartalheim, and honestly it feels like a return to the last game. This area is far and away the closest to the Lake of Nine exploration seconds from the last game, and while it initially feels like a major slowdown, paddling the boat across the vast expanses of water, completing puzzles and combat challenges, fighting mini-bosses, all while listening to Mimir tell stories, felt really, really good. And honestly, this is probably my favorite realm in the game, not just because it's one of the largest with the most things to explore and find, but also because it's different and fresh and colorful and vibrant, whereas returning back to Midgard and exploring the frozen Lake of Nine feels 
oddly claustrophobic. As I mentioned, there's a bunch of side content to do here before you meet Durlin if you so choose. I think a lot of people will probably dink around a little bit, perhaps put out the big furnaces that are scattered throughout the map, and then go and continue on with the story while meeting Durlin and his pet octopus. I also have to say that Bear McCreary is in the game and you actually run into him in Svartalheim while exploring. He runs a little inn and he has a bunch of dialogue. He even has a side quest that he hands out specifically, and he's there at the very end of the game where you reach the official credit sequence but I'll get to that at the end of the game and in case you don't know Bear McCreary is the composer he does all the music he came up with the dun 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 you know that that whole theme so he's kind of <laughs> kind of a big deal and it's cool to see that they gave him a part in the game it's just it's fun now after speaking with Durlin he gives you directions to find Tyr but disguises them as a fine for causing trouble blah 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 it's important to remember that Odin has a ton of influence in Svartalheim and is always watching and as a result Durlin can't be too careful so he's very covert in how he decides to help Kratos and Atreus which I thought was a good touch instead of just being like yeah sure go here go here do this it's actually a little more nuanced than that. With these instructions, the crew knows that they need to work their way up the mountain into the mine, which is exactly where Atreus thought that they might be keeping Tyr. As you spend an hour or two working your way up the mountain, you'll fight a Drekki, which is a gigantic lizard monster thing in a mini boss fight, which I thought was actually pretty fun. And the finisher is badass. I mean, look at that. That's so cool. Like father and son finishing a giant creature and killing it by stabbing its brain. I mean, it's what every father dreams of for their child one day. I'm going to tell little Lachlan, I'm going to be like, hey, one day we're going to kill a giant lizard together and it's going to feel great. <laughs> oh no, my bearded dragon heard me. I'm joking. I'm joking. I would never hurt a lizard. I love lizards. Oh yeah, by the way, if you didn't know, I have a big bearded dragon in an enclosure right out of frame. I don't have him in frame because the lights mess with like the focus of the cameras and stuff. But that's part of the reason it's always so hot in here when I film videos, because I have a lizard with like heat bulbs and stuff. So I kind of have only myself to blame. <laughs> There's also this moment I should mention as you work your way up the mountain to the mine that I thought was pretty funny and kind of a reference to the first game. Yeah, kind of tongue in cheek. Basically, you're riding a cart up the mountain when you're attacked by a bunch of little creatures who start breaking their way in. And honestly, what follows is one of my favorite little vignettes and little moments in the entire game narratively. And it's also a callback to the first game where they kind of poke fun at themselves as developers. So I'm just going to let it play. It's super quick. Uh oh. So, 
quite the mouth you had on the train, lad. It's just a word. I've heard way worse from... The word does not matter. You lost control. We were falling through the air. I thought we were gonna die. Is that what you truly wish your last word to be? No. In moments of crisis, panic does nothing. Harness it. Let it serve you. I just love this sequence for one because you see Atreus being real and dropping some some bad words that his dad doesn't like, and he teaches him a little lesson about it in the process. And then also the gigantic troll that comes in, and then immediately Kratos just hacks his head off. No boss fight, no nothing. They're like, yeah, we know trolls suck. They're awful. So he just goes in there and, and hacks his head off. I, I think that it's it's just a great sequence. I, I love this. It was good. After this crash, we are in the heart of the mine, and you'll notice that there are a lot of puzzle elements here. This is actually one of the most frustrating elements of God of War Ragnarok, and that is that puzzles like this often spoil themselves before they've had a chance to really shine. You see, what you're supposed to do in these puzzles is throw your axe up at the yellow troughs where the water is pouring out, and this will cause them to freeze and then the water to overflow on a lower level which would help you to turn certain turbines or do whatever else you need to manipulating the water. Time and time again throughout the game there will be puzzles where you think you've figured out what you're supposed to do and then they just spoil all of the fun by telling you exactly how to do the puzzle right as you arrive. Honestly I think a lot of this comes down to bugs and problems with timing. There's probably like some 10 second timer or 30 second timer once you cross this threshold where it's going to trigger a clue, audio, something or other to play for that particular puzzle. And in this case, the cue is just too short. It's timed at 10 seconds instead of like maybe 50 seconds or 120 seconds, whatever it may be. So I have full confidence that this is something that could be easily patched out later. And who knows, maybe it already is patched out and it was only really a problem during the review process or the first few days after launch. I'm not sure, but at this point, it's kind of difficult to gauge because I already know how to do the puzzles. So no matter what, when I go to these sections now, I'm just going to blast past them. I'm not even going to hit the quick cue because I just know exactly what to do. So this is something I can't really gauge anymore, unfortunately, but I'm just going to let you know that in my notes, I have a lot of comments about puzzles that kind of were spoiled for me because they they kind of let the secret out too soon. This section again is very slow paced. And honestly, I would say this particular area of Svartalheim is my least favorite area in the game. While the section that you can explore freely using the boat is a highlight, this section is definitely a low point. The puzzles aren't difficult, they're just tedious, and because the game constantly spoils how to solve them, it's not difficult or engaging, it's just annoying. I've said this before, I really don't like games that put puzzles in that aren't like engaging or fun or difficult, they're just tedious. Like you look at it, you know exactly what you have to do, but you just have to spend like two minutes turning cranks and running around doing this thing, run around, move that block, run around, move that block. I don't find that fun. I find that annoying as hell. And it seems like a lot of games do that now to just pad out gameplay time. And unfortunately, God of War Ragnarok does it at times as well. Not as frequently as the last game, but it's still here. But after dealing with all of that tedium, we stumble onto a carefully guarded area of the mine. We break the door down and inside, we find Tyr. He's tied up and has clearly been held here for a very long time. This god of war does not seem to be too much of a god or a god of war and combat because he seems to be a total pansy now. It seems like he's got a bunch of PTSD because Odin, he says, has been torturing him for 
a long time just for the fun of it. And so he is very scarred. And as a result, for the rest of the game, he's going to be very, very weird. Uh, not wanting to fight, not wanting to contribute to the process that they're they're chasing. It's a little weird, but you know what? Torture is an awful thing. Maybe he is honestly just scarred. Who knows? All we know is that we're going to save him. Hopefully he'll come to by the time Ragnarok comes around, especially because the giants seem to have prophesied that he will be present. Once rescued, you'll leave with Tyr, head back to Sindri's house, do your bits and bops with armor upgrades and equipment swapping, and then return to your quarters for some much needed rest. There's a little cutscene that plays out between Kratos and Mimir having a brief conversation about Atreus. Kratos says that he's really worried about Atreus because he seems so heavy handed and restless, but Mimir encourages him saying that it's important that he let the line out and allow Atreus to figure out who he actually is because keeping him on a tight leash won't actually help anything. And during this conversation, the camera has panned outside the window looking back at Kratos and Mimir. But you'll notice right after this ends, there's something interesting that happens. His pain is fresh. You expect too much. Ah, perhaps. Pity Freya still wants to kill you. That's an ally we could use. That is not an option. No, I don't suppose it is. Trouble sleeping. Ah! Shh. You cannot sneak up on me like that. There's something I have to do in Midgard. What? Without me? I thought we were partners. We are. Just wasn't sure you'd want to join me. I'm visiting an old friend. Oh, I see. Or possibly not doing that, taking into account she's determined to murder you. She wouldn't really. Oh, look, I think it's lovely that you see the best in people. I really do. And I want you to continue to see the best in people by not getting yourself murdered. <gasps> but we need her. It's worth the risk. Is it, though? How about I suggest an alternative? Something much less risky, but maybe could give you some answers. What are you talking about? A certain old friend you haven't seen in a while. A very giant friend. Jormungandr? Did you find him? Why don't I show you? It's just on the way to the vengeful goddess who wants you dead, so it'll give us some time to decide about not going there. So you know where Freya is? No, no. I mean, yes, but look, let's just talk to the snake first. And then I won't take you to Freya. How's that sound? That's right. We get to play as Atreus this time around. This was something I thought they might try to do, but I was really unsure. Honestly, I didn't think that they were actually going to go through with it until I saw that companion prompt or companion arrow prompt during the tutorial section when I knew, okay, characters are going to be swapping out playable characters are going to swap out maybe they'll actually do some character swaps that that actually might happen but to see that we actually get to go through entire sequences as atreus with sindri as our companion that's not something i expected i expected maybe like we'll do some missions with freya fighting alongside kratos and that'll be it but this is way cooler than i expected because they have an entire combat system tied around atreus they have of course his bow abilities all tied unique puzzles specific to him it's it's pretty cool again a perfect example of subverting expectations in a great way they knew that players would probably expect to play as atreus or for something to be different at the very least 
but then they take that and they're just going to keep cranking the dial. If you think that this is where it stops in terms of cool gameplay reveals, you're very wrong because it's just going to keep getting better and better. And also, I think the funniest moment in all of God of War Ragnarok happens right as you get control of Atreus, head to the Lake of Nine and start exploring by yourself. I'm just going to let this play because it's amazing. Basically, you know how Kratos opens chests. He just kind of punches it and breaks in. Watch this. A chest. Not so easy, huh? Shut up! You'll notice right as this happens, the camera freezes and I stop moving. That's because when this happened, I was dying of laughter. I was shocked. I just... It's so funny to me. It's so great. Like, yeah, Kratos makes it look really easy. He just punches in. And then Atreus tries it when he's off exploring with Sindri. And it's just, it's so funny to me. I love this. You can tell that was something like a developer threw out as something that might be funny to do. Like, oh, what if we did this thing where like, you know how Kratos opens chest? Maybe we have Atreus try that and he like hurts his wrist. And it's it's like a funny little moment where it's, yeah, not quite your father. Not yet. Yeah. I, and then they took that. They turned it into a whole gameplay moment. And I just, oh, it's great. It's great. So in this sequence, our main goal is to get acclimated to combat with Atreus through a couple of quick tutorial sections. And then to also speak with Jormungandir. This moment was pretty cool. And again, I feel like me just describing it won't do it justice. So I'll just let this play real quick because I think it's cool. Your That's not weird at all. Again, there's all these cool moments where it's like, oh, what's what's going to be cool? What's going to happen? Maybe we'll see the world serpent come out from behind a hill or something. And then they just take it and make it look way cooler. It's just, it's great. Right after this, Atreus tries to open up a gate in the same way that he's seen Kratos, his father, do countless times. And it's not as easy as he thought. Now our goal is to push on through to Freya and speak with her to try and convince her that she needs to team up with Kratos, Mimir, Atreus and Tyr because Odin is the real enemy. This is pretty ballsy. I mean, not gonna lie, it's pretty bold, but Atreus is confident that Freya doesn't want to kill him because she sees bits of her son in him. She wants 
Kratos. She's not happy with Atreus for sure, but she wants Kratos first and foremost. You return all the way to the Valkyrie Council, which you'll know from the last game, that is, at the very least, if you fought and defeated all of the Valkyries, including the final one, Sigrun, in this very same arena, though now, of course, it's completely frozen over thanks to Fimblewinter. And yes, I did get through that fight, and yes, it was utterly miserable. <laughs> I know this isn't a critique of that game, but I will just say the Valkyrie in that game were extremely frustrating because they felt like they were axe sponges. It felt like they just had such huge health bars, especially on higher difficulties, that it just wasn't even fun. They were all just endurance fights of like, okay, don't screw up for 15 minutes straight. And while some people might find that engaging or satisfying, I find it really frustrating and annoying. I would rather have a boss fight where there's like, okay, if you're really good, you can take them down quickly. Like, you know, th this fight I did against Blood Starved Beast in Bloodborne, where you learn how to use beast blood pellets and pungent blood cocktails. You corner him and then you quickly knock him out in the span of like, 45 seconds he's a very difficult boss but if you know how to approach it and if you're resourceful it's a relatively easy fight i wish there were more things like that in god of war but alas there there isn't i know that was a quick sidebar but still but setting all of that aside after speaking with freya she doesn't seem to be too inclined to help or to bury the hatchet with kratos and atreus however she lets atreus go unscathed he returns to sindri's house and is able to sneak back in without arising much suspicion you then sit down with the whole crew and have a lovely dinner together these are actually some of the most wholesome moments in the whole game it's just quiet and still you all just sit there together eat and talk. This happens a few times over the course of the game's runtime, and I actually really, really enjoy it. While at dinner together, the crew decides to travel to Alfheim to find the shrine of Groa, who is known as the Knowledge Keeper. Their idea is they can go there, they can check out the shrine, there's perhaps another panel behind it that was carefully hidden away from Odin, and within that they might have valuable information that could be used against Odin come Ragnarok. In order to travel there, you speak with Ratatusker, who is a very vivacious mouse rat squirrel <laughs> this is actually the same guy that was in the ability you could use in the last game which would allow you to like forage for healing stones or to rage stones whatever you needed for uh, combat in that given moment it was one of the special abilities but that version of him was always extremely grumpy and he actually explains later on in some specific dialogue that that version of him that you were playing with in that special ability is a particularly grumpy version of him it's sort of like different shades of a personality that's just the grumpy side of him but he's actually quite nice but he's actually the protector and keeper of the world tree so he is the one that is going to give you access to new realms using the idrisel seeds after finishing this conversation conversation with him, they will open up a bunch of new areas for you to travel to, including Muspelheim, Niflheim, and Alfheim. Right as you prepare to leave, Tyr offers to come with you, and you graciously accept his company. Now, while we've already been to Alfheim in the last game, the sections we get to explore this time around are slightly different, though we will get to see some of the same areas. Here it's same old, same old, with a bunch of puzzling, some exploration, treasure hunting, and many many waves of enemies. After about an hour of this tedium, you will eventually come to the shrine, and inside this, they see Ragnarok destroying only Asgard, while the rest of the realms are largely unharmed in the process. This is a revelation because the previous prophecies signaled that Ragnarok was going to be the destruction of the world, of everything. Everything was going to collapse, but according to this shrine, 
that was very carefully hidden away, it's only going to be Asgard that suffers the complete and utter destruction that was initially promised, or at least thought to have been promised. Also, Tyr seems specifically flabbergasted at this revelation, which I think is going to be important later because Mimir quickly speaks up and says, well, this means that Odin has been working off of a false prophecy this whole time, preparing for Ragnarok in all the wrong ways. It's interesting. We'll come back to it. After this discovery, we work our way back out of the temple, fighting off a bunch of light elves, eventually concluding in a mini boss fight against Alva. Once again, this is just Kratos and Atreus because Tyr, their god of war, refuses to help or fight in any way. But after we defeat her, we work our way back through many more waves of light elves. And once we've completed that, this area of the map opens up a lot. Similar to the frozen over Lake of Nine, this area is covered in sand and you can use your little dune sled thing to explore this area in more detail. And there are some cool things to find here, such as the gigantic cosmic jellyfish that you can free from its bondage. And I point to this specific example because there's actually a really sweet moment at the end of this. Check it out. Look, Father, thanks for bringing us out here, but I have to do this kind of stuff just to keep my mind off Ragnarok, you know? This was not a distraction. No? Then why are we really out here? Have you ever considered he just wants to spend time with you, lad, while he still can. Really? We do not know what lies ahead, but if Ragnarok approaches, I wish to enjoy the time we have left. I... I don't know what to say. Thank you for bringing us out here. It's this little dialogue that bookends these small excursions and side quests that really makes it all feel tied together. I've complained previously, or I, I guess I should say critiqued, because I think that's the, the sophisticated way of saying it, but I've complained previously about some games that seem to miss the boat when it comes to accurately motivating player action. And what I mean by that is, take an example like Fallout 4. In Fallout 4, the premise of the story is that your son, your character's son, has been kidnapped as an infant while you were in cryogenic sleep. And as a result, you have to save him by searching the wastes, following some clues around the map, discovering the Institute, blah, blah, blah. It's not the worst story ever, but in a game like Fallout 4, it doesn't actually work very well with the gameplay loop that they've established. Because you see, what will happen is most people who are taking the story actually seriously will seek out their son, First and foremost, before they do anything else, before they do any side content, they will look for their son because their freaking infant child has been stolen. However, the gameplay loop of Fallout 4 is built around you participating in all of this mindless tedium on the side, building your base, crafting all of that, exploring the wastes, finding different components for, you know, your, your power armor and all of that. And that doesn't actually jive with what the story would have the character do. In order to behave the way most players will have to behave in order to have fun with the game, exploring, crafting, you know, building your base, they would have to be a total maniac or a careless psychopath that doesn't care at all that their child's been kidnapped. 
So most players are just going to wait till the end of the game to do the side content. But by that point, all of the side content is way too low level for them and they're not going to have a good time while doing it. But God of War Ragnarok actually does a really good job of motivating the player to engage in that side content with Atreus. Ragnarok is coming, yes, but those side activities are justified in the story with dialogue like this. So there's a reason that Kratos and Atreus and Mimir would be going off and doing these side activities to just have fun and do something else to bond together and it helps the player not feel guilty or, or like there's some sort of dissonant motivation going on within the player's mind it works because the writers wrote it in a way where it works it's a small detail but for anybody who takes these stories even moderately seriously it makes a big difference after this excursion and whatever other side content you choose to engage with you return to sindri's house and you sit down to have dinner that Tyr has prepared after tasting brock's less than amazing meal the last time around there's a small dispute that breaks out at the dinner table that causes atreus to break off and go to his room but it's mostly tied up in once again kratos not really wanting to get involved in this whole Ragnarok thing. He wants to steer clear. He doesn't want to mess with it. It's not his place. He's just going to let it play out however it plays out. But Atreus wants to actually get involved and help fulfill the prophecies and things because he feels as though he is going to play a central role in this whole thing. In his room, he has a really sweet conversation with Sindri. Once again, we get to see just how close they are. And Sindri stresses that he should lay down and sleep. They've been going pretty hard for a while now and he should get some shut-eye. After falling asleep, Atreus has a dream where he's transported to some bizarre realm where he sees visions of the last game when he was younger discovering he was a god. He even dreams that he's stabbed by himself. I actually thought a lot about this and I wasn't sure exactly if there's like a super deep meaning to this dream sequence or if it's just meant to signify like Atreus feeling as though he hasn't grown up enough after the comments that Kratos has made. I mean, clearly it's a direct mirroring of what happened in God of War 2018 when young Atreus finds out he's a god, gets really full of himself as a child, and then decides to stab a broken and defenseless Modi in this same location. Perhaps this sequence is just meant to express a sense of guilt that Atreus has. Maybe he feels like he's the one causing all of this drama and trouble because of what he did to Modi. Who knows, maybe it's just as simple as showing that Atreus is really worried about what's going on. After he dreams that he's been stabbed, he yells out and seems to wake up from this dream. Though he's not in Sindri's house anymore, he's somewhere else. He's greeted by a wolf that starts leading him through this dense forest. And I don't know about you guys, but I cannot help but think of Monster Hunter World whenever I look at this sequence. It just screams of like the Coral Highlands or someplace like that. Maybe I'm the only one who thought that, or maybe now that I've said it, you'll never be able to unsee it, but that's that's all I could think of. This whole section and chunk of gameplay, I was just like, oh yeah, no, I'm playing Monster Hunter. God of War, the Monster Hunter expansion. But regardless of its similarities to other phenomenal games, after pushing through, you meet a young woman who is painting some sort of mural that seems to depict Atreus and some woman. That woman apparently being this one which of course would mean that she saw this moment coming, began painting it, and timed it out perfectly so it would be just about done right as he arrived. And she says as much, communicating clearly that her destiny is to share with Atreus, or Loki, his 
destiny. After a brief exchange, she introduces herself as Angerboda. She lives in this realm and has the ability to reassemble things that have previously been destroyed, almost like a time rewind. She also makes it very clear that she's been waiting for the moment that just occurred, that is, the moment where she meets Atreus, for her entire life. He's a little thrown off by this, doesn't know what to say, understandably. I mean, imagine you meet, like, a cute girl, and you're like, oh, hey, what's up, what's up? And she's like, I've been waiting for this moment my entire life. You're like, oh, me too? <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> kind of a heavy-handed pickup line, I'll give you that. Uh, but you know what? If it works, it works. The following hour or so of gameplay is pretty slow paced, but I actually found it to be a nice break from the monotony that was Alfheim. There was a lot of combat, a lot of light and dark elves that got pretty tedious and repetitious. So to have these moments where there's just some quiet dialogue, some beautiful scenery was actually a nice shakeup. The whole journey, she keeps stressing that she needs to show you something and tell you about your destiny, but she has to show you first. So you wait patiently and work with her as you fight through some basic enemies later on in this sequence and eventually come to the location she's been leading you to. You see, there's a collection of these marbles, the same thing that Atreus showed Kratos and Mimir when they first started on this journey to find Tyr. Within these marbles are the souls and spirits of the giants, or at least some of them. There's something about these objects that can possess and contain these spirits and souls, and she tells Atreus that it's his destiny to carry these with him. This is also going to be very important later, and it's going to tie into something that already happened in the story that I also told you to remember for later, so... Uh, for now, I'm going to keep you in suspense if you don't know what's happening, but uh, all of this ties together. I should also clarify that it's in this sequence here with Angerboda that it's revealed to Atreus that Kratos is prophesied to die. He hasn't seen these murals or depictions previously because the only one that they knew of was in Jotunheim. But now, for whatever reason, Angerboda has a copy of this mural and can show it to Atreus. And in this, it depicts the same scene that we saw at the end of the last game where Kratos is laying down in Kratos's arms, seemingly dead. This causes a bit of a freak out on Atreus's part and reaffirms his idea that he needs to figure out what's going on with Ragnarok before it's too late because he doesn't want his father to die. But once again, he doesn't know that his father knows this and Kratos now doesn't know that Atreus knows it. So there's just miscommunication across the board, kind of a comedy of errors, as it were, and uh, it's only gonna get worse, so buckle up. On your way back, there's a wolf that's captured in some sort of trap and dragged off into the distance. Being an animal lover and clearly very concerned, Atreus wants to go and help this wolf, but Angerboda says it's not that simple. You see, the person responsible for the kidnapping of this wolf is Angerboda's grandmother, named Gorilla, Gryla, Gorilla, something like that. I wrote it down, but I don't remember how it's pronounced, and frankly, I'm too lazy to put on my headphones and listen back to it, so here we are. I mean, how wrong could I possibly be? Gorilla, Gryla, Gr Gorilla? I don't, I've, I don't know. Something like that. She says that her grandmother has basically gone a little uh, crazy. Ever since her father said that he wasn't going to do anything to avert his fate, she just kind of lost it and has started to collect souls of the animals that she finds out in the forest. And that's the fate that this wolf is going to soon suffer. So deciding that they must help Atreus and Angerboda push into her grandmother's house. And it turns out 
her grandmother is a freaking giant. And not like Atreus or Fey giant, but like giant giant, like big. This was actually really cool. It's a whole sequence where you're running around like a giant's kitchen. There's huge cups everywhere, silverware, bowls. And then you see her grandmother come in and she's just gigantic. And then there's a little boss fight. It's actually pretty cool. I guess saying little boss fight isn't really fair here because she's quite big. And honestly, this is one of the most memorable combat sequences of the entire game. After you release the wolf, the fight starts and it's all centered around this bowl that her grandmother is carrying. Apparently, this is part of what's corrupted her because this bowl has the ability to capture these souls. It's a gimmick fight, sure, with you having to hit these highlighted locations and weak points on the bowl, eventually building up a charge meter that will eventually lead her to dropping the bowl, which you can then break apart to deal some high damage. It's not really the most difficult combat section of the game, but you know what? It gets the job done. And these big set piece fights, I don't think are necessarily about being the most difficult thing or the most challenging. It's more about being memorable and unique and standing out for all of the reasons included in the consideration. And in this case, I find this sequence to be just great. I, I love this. In fact, when I think about God of War Ragnarok, this is one of the first fights that I think of. I know for some people it might be like forgettable because it's not really tied into the, the main story, but I still really like it. But nonetheless, after you break the bowl, you escape her house and you get to do a fun little race with Angerboda back to where you began. She hops on a fox and you, Atreus, transform into a wolf. It's a really beautiful set piece and just a nice way to finish out this sequence. I really, really like this. Once they return back, Atreus realizes he probably needs to get back to avoid an ass whooping, so he goes back to sleep and attempts to teleport back into Sindri's house where he left. However, this doesn't work, and instead he's transferred directly back to their home in Midgard. You fight some enemies, and when you try to open the portal door, Kratos is there not too happy. Kratos starts to express his displeasure with Atreus, but at that very moment as they're getting into the heated argument, they're ambushed. There's a bunch of grunts and then one larger Valkyrie looking enemy that serves as the boss for this section. After a tough fight, it's revealed that this is actually Freya. She gets the jump on Kratos and holds him at sword point? Is sword point a word, like as a term, like knife point or gun point, but it's a sword, maybe, I don't know. But she gets the jump on him. She's about to kill him to get revenge for what he did to Balder at the very moment that Atreus freaks out and transforms into a bear, yet again. Kratos grabs him and tries to calm him back down, saying not to harm Freya because she's their friend and that she doesn't deserve to be killed simply because she has natural emotions after her son was, well, killed in front of her. After a brief pause, Freya reconsiders and decides that Odin is the real enemy. And she says that Kratos and Atreus are worth more to her alive than dead. Kratos commands Atreus to go back home with Sindri and Brock and tells him that they'll finish their conversation later. But for the meantime, he's going to go with Freya and help her achieve whatever she needs done. After they've left, Kratos and Freya have a brief conversation where she says that they need to travel to Vanaheim in order to free her from her bonds. There's something there that limits her to the realm of Midgard, and she wants to be able to go wherever she wants to go freely. And so she's asking you to help her in exchange for her 
not killing you. Now during this bit, Freya has to maintain a very low profile, which is why she transforms into this bird form as you explore with Brock helping you in combat. This is again, one of those subversions of expectations. I thought they were gonna shake it up with more companions like Freya, but to be able to play through combat and sequences of gameplay with Brock is not something I ever expected, and it's honestly pretty funny, especially hearing Brock banter with Mimir and then Freya and Kratos. It just works great. Sindri, of course, is great in and of himself, uh, but hearing all of these characters bounce between each other is just, it's tremendous. I know I use that word a lot. Somebody on stream told me that, and now I, I can't stop hearing it every time I say it, but it really is tremendous. There's more puzzles, navigation, combat sequences as you work your way through the realm. Eventually you meet Freyr, who is Freya's brother. He runs a camp with a bunch of people and races from all different realms that he's been able to unite under a common goal. Something that of course will be important later come Ragnarok. This guy's really good at delegating and getting people on his side. He's like a, a, a tremendous politician, but in the world of of Norse mythology. I think that's a compliment. <laughs> but after this, you push out and you continue trying to find whatever is holding Freya to Midgard. Whatever it is, is being held here and is very, very carefully protected. Eventually, you do find the curse with several Idrisil roots attached to it, and this is going to require some time and effort on Freya's part to free herself from. As she begins to try and free the roots, you are jumped by a big scary beastie boy. Yes, that's the official name. I have written Santa Monica Studio asking them to make it official as the English translation of the Norse name. I have not heard back yet though. I'm hoping they patch the game with the correct title, but we'll just have to wait and see. This boss fight against Needhog is really, really cool. I don't know, it's just visually interesting. It's straight out of Monster Hunter. I, I I just, I freaking love it. It's just badass. And also the finisher for this fight is one of the best that I can think of in the entire game. So I'll just let this play because it's awesome. It's going back in. We will not let it. Was that badass or what? That was awesome. After the boss fight's over, Freya is able to free herself from the binds that constrained her to that realm. This also means that she can now freely explore without having to be in falcon form. It's also right after this that Kratos apologizes to Freya for robbing her of the choice between life and death. She wanted to allow Baldur to kill her, because she preferred that to the alternative, which is what inevitably happened. Kratos acknowledges that it was wrong of him to take that choice from her, and she accepts this apology. At this point, she's not ready to forgive him outright, but she is very appreciative of the apology nonetheless. Right after this, we also unlock the Amulet of Idrisil, which is actually a pretty interesting gameplay system. Basically, it's an amulet that starts out with two free slots. And as you play through the game and complete side content, you'll unlock more pieces of this to be able to repair it 
unlocking another slot, eventually unlocking all the way up to 10. In these sockets, you can place different enchantments that have all different abilities. It could be an increase to cooldown, runic, strength, defense, luck, vitality, whatever. And they're each part of a set. And once you complete the set, you get the qualifications and set bonuses for each of those enchantments. Think of the mutation system in The Witcher 3. That's basically how this works, where you build out the different color-coded things in each set, and when they combine together, they're more powerful together than apart. That's basically what's going on here. This is just one more thing that they added to the game that I don't think they needed to, but it's a nice addition, especially for the end game. By the time your Kratos is level seven or eight, you probably have a very specific loadout within the amulet that very specifically caters to your playstyle whether it be a high strength, low vitality build or whatever else. Once you've finished with this, you have the ability to go and explore to your heart's content. This is one of my other favorite sections in the game just because there's so much to do and so much side content. If you wanna get lost and just explore freely, this is a great place to do it. Tied into some of these side activities are also a ton of different bosses that are each engaging and fun by themselves, even if they are the occasional copy and paste or reskin of a previous boss, such as the fight against the two Drecky after helping Freya complete her favor Freya's missing piece. When you help Freya come to terms with her marriage with Odin and the resolution of that along with Mimir's ties to that marriage and the suffering that she endured. It's a really sweet story and it also helps to make this progression between Kratos and Freya and more importantly the forgiveness Freya has towards Kratos it helps it feel a lot more natural when the time comes. It's actually a point of praise I think for the side content here where the side quests actually complement the main story in a really noticeable way where completing the side content now before the game's events have fully transpired actually helps the main story feel more impactful and more significant. And I know that might sound like, oh, well, no, duh, that should be the common goal. It should be the common goal, but it's not actually that easy to pull off. And in fact, the only other game that I think has really done this remarkably well in the last four years is probably Red Dead Redemption 2 and before that The Witcher 3. This is extremely hard to do where the side content makes the main story better and it's not just totally isolated on the side. It's high praise and I think that they do a great job here. But with all the fun and games done, it's time to return back to Sindri's home and have that difficult conversation with Atreus. But before we get into that really awkward mess, I'm going to go and have dinner and like go to sleep and then wake up and shower and get dressed again uh, because these videos take a long time to film. Like a whole week of, of a work week is spent filming a video, one video this size. So uh, I'll see you tomorrow, but to you it's gonna feel instant. It's gonna be a costume change as well. Uh, so yeah, I'm really lifting the curtain on this, but I'll see you in the second. While you wait for me, you should go again LukeStevensTV.com, get some merch. It's all, it's all great. It's all great. I don't have a sponsor for this video. Please justify the crazy time that I spend making these videos. I would really appreciate it because a ton of videos have been getting like flagged and stuff and I would really appreciate it. So <laughs> 
Thank you. I love you guys. I'll see you in a second. And boom, just like that, we're back in it, wearing my 16 times the details shirt, ready to go. As I was saying, after returning to Sindri's house, Kratos decides to have that big talk with Atreus. It's basically centered around Atreus's constant lying and the fact that he's been gone for about two days and refuses to say where he was or what he was doing. Initially, I thought that this was kind of a contrived dispute between Atreus and Kratos. You would think that Atreus would just come out and be like, yeah, dad, I was sleeping and then I was transformed and sent to some faraway land. I met a young girl and we freed a wolf from a giant grandma and it was crazy and weird. And then I went back to our house. It was bizarre. I think if he was just honest and direct, that would be an answer at the very least, and it would save a lot of drama. And while I still think that that certainly makes more sense than what ended up happening, which is that Atreus just continued lying and refusing to acknowledge where he had been or what he had been doing, I do think that Atreus's actions here are somewhat justified, even if they're a little irrational. You see, Atreus is very, very worried that what he saw in that mural of Kratos dying in his arms is going to take place if he doesn't do something. So he decides that he probably needs to go and speak with Odin. After all, Odin did invite him to Asgard back when he first came to the house with Thor. You know, a similar idea to Odin, trying to keep your friends close and your enemies closer. And I can also see why Atreus wouldn't want to tell Kratos where he's been and what he's seen over the last day and a half. Not only is it possible that Kratos might not believe him, especially in light of this desire to go and speak with Odin, but no doubt Mimir, Tyr, and everybody else in the house will probably keep pushing Atreus until he spills the beans about everything he saw there, everything from the marbles to the mural itself. And at the end of the day, Atreus thinks that by not revealing that he knows about this secret mural showing Kratos is dying in his arms, he thinks that that information, if given to Kratos and everybody else, could actually lead to that being more likely to happen. So he's trying to save his father and everybody else from getting involved in it and just take matters into his own hands. Though, of course, because it's how these types of stories always go, it just makes things worse. Atreus and Kratos begin arguing back and forth, pushing into the dining room, and eventually Atreus grows so agitated that he actually transforms into Bjorn and storms out of the house and travels through the world tree back to Midgard. Here we have yet another section where we play as Atreus, pushing through and trying to find a way to get to Odin. To do this, he needs to find one of Odin's ravens, which he seeks out by going back to the witch's house. You remember this one, the big turtle named Charlie? Well, he's back, but he's very, very cold because turtles don't like winter. You see, that was a useful piece of information. Now you can tell everybody that you aren't just watching a multi-hour long video on a single video game, but rather that you're watching a documentary about turtles. And then when they ask, okay, yeah, what did you possibly learn about turtles? You can tell them they don't like winter. After starting a fire to help Charlie warm up, you find one of the ravens. And at this point, you get transported quickly into a river. And after you climb out, you discover that you've actually been transported to Asgard. I don't know about you guys, but the moment I saw this sequence, I thought that it looked as though I was in some sort of weird Death Stranding DLC, probably because Asgard was modeled largely after Iceland, which also was where Death Stranding got much of its inspiration. But now that I've said it, you're gonna constantly be looking out for Sam Porter, just like I was. Sorry, Sam Porter Bridges, proper name. <laughs> After rounding a corner, you'll also see some of the massive walls that are protecting Asgard from the wilds outside. Seeing no other way to progress, Atreus pushes up towards the wall and decides he's going to climb his way up. While on his way, he meets a young boy named Skjoldir who seems to be just a regular kid. I don't have a lot to say about this character. It's really weird and just kind of random, at least at this point in the story. It feels 
strange to have them here. It'll come back at the end why they've been invited here by Odin and why they're at the base of the walls and they've been given refuge. But at this point in the game, it felt like a really artificial way of introducing a new character. Like he just shows up on your way to climb the wall and then he's just like he follows you along a little bit so you learn who he is. And then he just stops following you. It, it's really strange and just awkward. I, I thought that this was one of the weirder sections of the game, narratively speaking. It's just clunky. Now, one thing I do want to touch on that I haven't discussed yet are the different types of arrows that are used by companions, or in this case, by the protagonist, Atreus, in this sequence, in order to solve puzzles. Uh, they're a little clunky. I mentioned earlier in the sequence where we travel to Svartalfheim to find Tyr within one of the mines that Atreus unlocks this bluish green arrow that's used to break apart these glowy things. Those are called sonic arrows, but there's another type of arrow that you get specifically thanks to Freya. They're called sigil arrows and they have this purplish pinkish color. Now these things are used to solve all sorts of puzzles all throughout the game. Some of the main story, some of the side content, they're all over the place. Well, the sonic arrows are pretty straightforward. Aim at that thing that's glowing greenish blue, shoot it, it'll blow up. It's straightforward, it makes sense. The sigil arrows, however, can be shot in succession at the same point to increase an orb of influence around them. What this allows you to do is chain elemental effects together because these arrows can increase their effectiveness. So here we need to light this bush on fire, but we don't have the blades of chaos like Kratos. So instead we see the fire burning off to the left and we have to use these orbs of influence with the sigil arrows in order to chain the effect of the campfire onto the bush. Pretty straightforward, right? And let me be clear, I like these things as a gameplay system. The problem is that they're very inconsistent. I can't even tell you how many times I tried to stack arrows to make the orbs bigger or that I fired on some sort of element to try and cause the element to ignite and then carry over across the different orbs and it just didn't work. Again, this is something that they probably can patch out and by the time you're playing the game either now or just before this video or after this video or maybe never at all, it's possible they could have patched all of this and it's a non-issue at this point. But what I do know is while I played the game, this was extremely frustrating because regularly I would reach one of these puzzles and try to get it working and it just felt more tedious and difficult than it needed to be. Like right here at the same spot, there's a chest hidden underneath this cliff ledge that's guarded by the same type of bush that you have to burn down. In order to do this, you have to use these sigil arrows in order to create orbs of influence I know that's not what they're probably technically called, but that's just what I'm going to call it. It's an orb with the influence of the effect. It works. But you have to use these orbs of influence to expand the fire effect out onto the bush so that it ignites and you can get the treasure. But the angles are extremely awkward. The orbs don't carry over very well. You have to overlap them in a really strange and inconsistent way. And these puzzles didn't seem fun. It didn't feel like I was figuring anything out whenever I came across puzzles like this. Calling them puzzles is kind of a stretch to begin with. And I've said this before. Puzzles that just serve to increase playtime and make things more difficult for the player than they need to be are not a net positive. That's a net negative. It's not a good thing. It just makes the player feel as though you're wasting their time. But regardless, we push on with our new friend up to the wall and then we begin climbing. This section actually gives us some pretty amazing views of the terrain off in the distance and I really enjoy just getting to free climb up this wall, though it's pretty short-lived. Within just a few minutes, they're going to keep throwing more of these 
infuriating creatures at you, these floating orbs that can go die. I've said it before, I'll say it again. This section also, like some others in this game, felt needlessly tedious. It didn't feel as though there was actual challenge here. They were just trying to slow me down so climbing the wall would take longer. I think I'm particularly sensitive to this type of offense because once I notice it, I have a really hard time not noticing it because usually developers will stack whole chapters of games with events like this. There's some really simple activity you have to complete, but in order to pad it out so it takes you a full hour, they fill it with all sorts of mindless garbage. Here, we're just climbing a gigantic wall. I don't think it needs to be more complicated than that. I think if they kept it, so it was just a free climbing section, maybe with some light platforming, shoot down that ladder, and then it drops, you climb up. Something like that would be just fine. I don't know why every single rock ledge and cliffside has to have all of these little enemies and creatures for you to fight. It's just annoying to me. One thing I will give them is that on this cliffside, you can see down to the Lake of Nine and you can understand why it's no longer accessible from the travel room that we were at in the first game because the whole thing is totally broken. Regardless, you keep pushing up the wall and eventually you make it to the top and are greeted by none other than Heimdall. This guy's commonly called the God of suspicion or intuition. Basically, he's the guy that can like read your mind and figure out what you're thinking before you're even aware of it. And that makes him a great guard because if somebody comes in and says, I just wanna talk and hang out, but they have ulterior motives, he can see right through you. Understandably, he doesn't think that you are trustworthy and he would much rather send you off the cliff back down to your death. But he can't do that because he finds out very quickly that Odin has personally invited Atreus here. This immediately should set off red flags within the player and Atreus's mind because if Heimdall knows what's going on and is going to communicate that to Odin, Odin's gotta be playing some 4D hungry, hungry hippo's chess in order to navigate all of these nuanced motivations where Atreus feels like he can get the jump on Odin, but he also is just sick of his father and everybody else back at Sindri's house. So he's, he's trying to play everybody at the same time. You should be worried because Odin is no fool and he knows all of this stuff much better than you or Atreus or anybody else. So Heimdall agrees to take you to Odin. On the other side of the wall, you can look down and see Asgard for the first time. And I'll be completely honest, I was a little underwhelmed. I don't know what I expected. Maybe Marvel has spoiled me with this stuff, but I just expected something a little more fancy and epic and, and uh, gaudy maybe. But this is just like, it looks like a little village on a cliffside surrounded by big rock walls. It doesn't feel like some sort of mythical uh, majestical world. It, it's like, yeah, it's like a, a village. It's kind of a small one at that, but okay. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one who thought this. If you thought that this was like super epic and cool, then let me know in the comment section. But uh, I don't know. I, I couldn't help but feel like this was a little underwhelming. After taking an elevator ride down and then riding some big creature over to Odin's humble abode, Heimdall rips you off of it and then summons a bunch of guards to attack you. Heimdall lets Atreus know that he is aware that he does in fact have treacherous intent. Again, he can see right through him. He knows that he's not here just to cozy up to the Allfather. So you fight some people off and then try to have a mini boss fight with Heimdall, but very quickly you realize that you're not able to land a single hit on him because well, he literally knows exactly what you're going to do before you do it. This is one of the few times in the game where I really felt as though we were fighting a god, like somebody who has 
inordinate abilities and powers that we just can't even compete with. And that's the point. Everybody says Heimdall has never had a single hit landed against him because he is always aware of what everybody's going to do before they even think of doing it. So naturally, it's going to set up some really interesting combat sequences later on. Also, this moment was really cool. Right as Heimdall is about to turn around and beat the ever-living crap out of Atreus, Thor shows up. On his belly, you can see the cut that Kratos left with the Leviathan Axe. If you'll remember earlier, we went through that tidbit about why this happened and why this wound didn't heal. But setting that aside, Thor scares off Heimdall and says that Odin wants to speak to Atreus and it's not his position to kill the boy. This is when Odin arrives and we get to see him once again in all of his hilarious beauty. Odin is played by Richard Schiff, who's a well-known American actor. I know him best from his prolific work as none other than Titus Fisher in the greatest movie of all time, Johnny English Reborn. Oh my God, if he was here and he heard that I said that his greatest work was in Johnny English Reborn, I'm sure he would slap the crap out of me. But truly, he is a very gifted actor. He's amazing. And the charisma he brings to the role of Odin is just ridiculous. It just oozes charisma out of every pore. Odin is amazing. Heimdall tries to warn him that Atreus wanted to betray him, and Odin goes, well, yeah, I mean, of course. I haven't given him any reason to trust me. Of course he wanted to betray me. I have to earn his trust. Which, at this moment, the player is sitting there like, uh, yeah, I don't trust you because I don't have a reason to trust you. Everybody says I shouldn't, but you seem kind of cool. And he just starts, like, giving you a tour of his house and being really nice to you. It's really really weird. I mentioned earlier that the whole time you're dealing with Odin, you keep questioning whether or not he's actually the bad guy that everybody talks about. If anything, one of the critiques I could make about the story within God of War Ragnarok is that this version of Odin doesn't seem to be that heartless and evil, at least not until the last possible moment, which is kind of the point, which is why I'm not going to levy it as a critique, because the whole point of this thing is that Odin is a great manipulator, and the whole time, he's not only grooming Atreus to play by his rules and to be on his team, but he's also grooming the player to play by his rules and to think that he's not actually that bad of a guy. The same exact thing everybody else said he would do. Again, we'll get to it at the end of the video, what happens and what they do to reveal just how horrible of a person Odin is, but we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Over the course of the next section, you can see Odin walking around his kingdom. He's preparing Asgardian warriors to fight for him. You can check in on the Valkyrie and you even get to meet with some of his family. And again, the banter here is just tremendous. I mean, w watch this bit. Like, this is probably ad-libbed, and it's great. But with all respect, you need to know, I came to study, not to serve. Another servant is the last thing I need. I need someone with drive, with curiosity, someone who'll take initiative. That looks good. Is that braised? But why me? Is it because I'm half giant? Big deal. So's Thor. Erlen, try to stay awake for me. Okay, but... Look, don't overthink it. I mean, all of that dialogue is just so natural. It just plays off. And again, Odin doesn't seem like a bad guy. He just seems like the man in charge who's like a little silly and goofy. And it's great. You know, today on stream, we were actually talking about this methodology that Santa Monica Studio put forward in this game. And that is that they're trying to make the gods of the Norse realm like crazy gods like we saw in God of War 3. These versions of gods are much more grounded, they're much more human, and much less mythical in scale. And while initially I found that kind of underwhelming after being spoiled by the crazy huge set pieces of God of War 1, 2, 3, and all of the others, 
I actually kind of like it because it makes the characters the focus and that is in and of itself kind of epic in its own way. A couple of important things to note, as you continue following Odin around, he transports you all the way to Svartalfheim where you meet with Durlin once again. Of course, he recognizes Atreus because he helped him find where Odin was hiding Tyr, but he doesn't spill the beans and keeps quiet. It appears that Odin has commissioned the dwarves to craft a bunch of siege machines in order to defend Asgard come Ragnarok. This will be very important later. <laughs> You'll also get a change of clothes, which I found to be one of the coolest armor set pieces in the entire game, especially for Atreus, but I also think across the board, this is one of the coolest looking ones. You also get to meet Thor's daughter, who is by herself a force of nature. You'll get to hang out with Thrud a little bit more later, but as for right now, she just seems to be very skeptical of the young boy that her grandfather has welcomed into their house. You eventually meet Odin in his study. He gives you a sword that seems very special since it can fly around and do all sorts of crazy things. He tells you that it's a perk of the job and it seems pretty clear that he's trying to win you over. He takes you underneath his study into a cave complex where there's a bunch of study materials scattered about and one very suspicious looking tear. He calls it a rift and says that it contains all of the knowledge and truth in everything, like full stop. And because it contains all knowledge and truth, this rift also contains the knowledge of how to stop Ragnarok, how to save everybody's lives, how to protect the ones that you love, how to live forever, what happens even after you die if you can't live forever. All of that info is inside that weird, like, space vagina. But in order to access this information, they need to use some sort of secret sacred mask, which Odin has found one part of, but that he needs Atreus to help him collect the other pieces of. You see, Odin needs Atreus to help him find the rest of the mask pieces because Atreus is able to read whatever secret language is written on top of it, which clues the reader to where the next piece can be found. Little contrived, sure, but it's a video game, whatever. And this sets into motion one of the craziest and most unexpected sequences of the entire game. And that is that we are going to go to Muspelheim to look for another mask fragment with Thor as our companion. Yeah, I knew that they were going to take it up a notch. I knew they were going to do something crazy and they were going to subvert expectations here and there. But never in my wildest dreams did I think we would, for one, be playing as Atreus, but also that we'd be playing as Atreus and be partnered up with Thor for like an entire sequence. It, it was so surprising to me when I got here. All my notes say on my Google Doc is what <laughs> that perfectly uh, explains how I felt in this moment. I was like, no freaking way. And sure enough, you go to Muspelheim with Thor and you start looking for the mask pieces. There's some really interesting dialogue here between the two. You can tell that Thor isn't super happy to be babysitting him, but you know what? It's cute. Thor also helps you navigate up crazy ledges by just grabbing the scruff of your neck and then jumping up using Mjolnir. It's really funny and I loved it every time it happened. And here we fight side by side with Thor to take down all of these lava people. I I'm like, actually kind of in love with this. Yes, it's more waves of enemies and it starts to drag a little bit, but just being able to play side by side with Thor makes it a treat in and of itself. We also get to try out this crazy sword that's able to swing itself, which is actually pretty interesting and cool. I really liked using this thing. Unfortunately, it won't stay with us for too long. As we fight through waves and waves of enemies and look for different places where the mask could be by holding it up and seeing where it glows, dialogue and banter is exchanged 
And at one point, Atreus even sees one of the giant shrines off in the distance. He knows he needs to get there because it's probably going to contain more secrets that they can use in their fight against Odin in order to prevent all of the predictions that were seen in the other murals and shrines, specifically the one back with Angerboda. The way he breaks away in order to do this is by convincing Thor that he should go and try some of the Muspelheim challenges himself and have a little fun while doing it. Because he's the god of thunder, he can do whatever he wants. So go figure it out, I'll be left alone here, you'll be fine, basically. And sure enough, Thor jumps up and starts fighting the waves of enemies that you can fight at the end of the game yourself. And the whole time that you're climbing down to the shrine, you hear him basically giggling to himself, having so much fun fighting all of these enemies because he's been locked up in Asgard thanks to Odin. It's just, it's just really cute, it's funny. Eventually you open the shrine and you see, out of nowhere, Angerboda show up. It's in this shrine that they find out some more details as to what they need to do specifically to bring on Ragnarok, mostly relating to Surtur and how they will begin Ragnarok using his help. But Atreus has to get back to Thor. So he pushes back up, Thor comes back, brags about how easy it was to fight all those waves of enemies. You find the extra mask piece that you need and you're transported back to Odin. He's very proud of you and realizes that this mask and in turn Atreus is going to be the key to getting what he's always wanted because the knowledge contained within this rift is what's been driving Odin to do everything he's done throughout almost the entirety of his life. Atreus then translates the rest of the mask and realizes that what is likely the last piece is going to be held within Helheim. But before Atreus and Thrud go off to find that last mask piece within Helheim, you get to transition and play some with Kratos, and Freya. The task at hand for this section of the game is to get to the Norns and talk to them about what's going to happen. These are like the fates, basically. They can see the future, they prophesy, blah, 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 you know the drill. This section of the game actually felt really, really weird. It just came out of nowhere. I get it. They wanted to break up the Atreus bit and all of the focus on Odin and give you something else to do, especially just the chance to play with Kratos again, because he certainly has the more I guess, flushed out gameplay systems. But honestly, it just felt kind of weird. I get that they don't have a lot of other ideas as to how to get to Atreus and save him from Odin's influence, because as far as they know, Atreus just ran off to go to Odin. So it's it's very weird. Like something odd is going on with him. They need to save him. Maybe the Norns know how to do it. So you'll spend like two hours hunting them down, going through a bunch of side quests if you so choose, building up your armor and leveling up, eventually riding a water horse to them. Not that kind of water horse, but like, you know, an actual horse that's in water. <laughs> There's not a lot to be taken away from the Norns. They're largely unhelpful. Uh, they just seem like a bunch of cows that live in a sea anemone under a lake and um, they're kind of rude. <laughs> but one thing they do tell you is that Heimdall does intend, in fact, to kill Atreus the first chance he gets. The Norns say that in response to this, Kratos is destined to kill Heimdall and as a result, usher in Ragnarok, which will end everything. So you leave, hop on the water horse, and ride back to the surface. And while Kratos, for the most part during this game, has been very resistant to playing the games of the fates and trying to fulfill or avoid prophecy, this time around, he is very clear. There is no question he is going to kill Heimdall if Heimdall is going to kill Atreus. He will be left no choice. On the way out of the lake, you do discover a noose hanging in the tree. Mimir says that this is the noose that Odin tried to hang himself with as part of his 
endless mad quest for the secrets of life and death. Freya takes it with her, and when asked why, by Kratos, she's doing this, she just says, eh, it's special to Odin. Maybe I'll find a use for it. Foreshadowing! <laughs> now this sets into motion the events that will inevitably lead to Ragnarok, but Kratos does not care because he knows that the only way to stop Atreus from dying is to kill Heimdall. Now, in order to kill Heimdall, they're gonna need some sort of special weapon because Heimdall can, of course, see everything coming. What Kratos is using right now probably is not going to do the trick. And so they need something totally out of left field that nobody will see coming at all. And to help with this mission to defeat Heimdall, Brock and Sindri decide that they're gonna whip a little something special up. Specifically, they're going to use Dropnir. Now, Dropnir, if you're not familiar, is a special magical ring in Norse mythology that's possessed by Odin with the ability to multiply itself. In the classical version of the tale, every ninth night, eight new rings fall from the ring, exactly identical to the original. And this, of course, makes it extremely valuable, allowing you to pretty much indefinitely produce infinite wealth. But in this version of Norse mythology, it's a little different. It's just kind of like a shaky, unsteady ring that does duplicate itself a lot, as can be seen at the bottom of this well, basically, where they store the ring. But they're going to take it to a special blacksmith, shall we say, to craft a weapon with it. So the crew sets out to find this craftsmith who's going to help them create the weapon. All they communicate is that this person's name is The Lady and that she is very, very special. And also that it's important that Sindri is the one that goes and does the talking. It's not made super clear right now why Sindri wants so desperately to be the one that goes with you to speak to The Lady and help get this thing done but it's going to become clear a little bit later. Brock says it's because Sindri's trying to hog all the glory, but there's an actual reason for it. But for now, we travel on through to Svartalfheim to find this mysterious craft person. I was going to say blacksmith, but she lives in the water, so like... That doesn't really make a lot of sense, but I guess she technically is. I don't know, it's complicated. Along the way, you'll run into Sindri once again, who begs you to let him take Brock's place, but Kratos roundly refuses. He says Brock is the one that's going to do it, and he commands Sindri not to ask again. So we complete a bunch of puzzling and do all sorts of mindless tedium on our way. Eventually, you separate from Freya, and you go just with Brock up to the lady, to get the job done. Now, funnily enough, it's actually on the way up this mountain that I discovered the first major soft lock I encountered in the entire game. What happened is that we need to take this lift up the mountain, but in order to do it, you have to clear one of the mechanisms, which ends up being broken. So you have to go up to the right side here and complete a small little puzzle in order to take a cargo elevator up the cliff side so that you can then continue climbing from a higher station. However, in order to complete this puzzle, you actually have to have the help of Brock because he has to stand on the elevator once you take the axe back so the water propels the elevator back up he gets off and then he can let you back up from another angle right makes sense but he never spawned he just didn't leave this initial elevator platform he just stayed there and refused to move so i ran around for like uh 15 minutes and just dinked around trying to figure out this puzzle and i felt like i was just super stupid and this was before the review embargo lifted so there were no guides or anything i just thought i was being dumb and i couldn't figure out the puzzle but eventually i just said screw it i'm gonna reload in case something went wrong and then when i did that 
total problem fixed. Brock runs right over to the platform. You lift him up. It's like a super quick and easy puzzle. It was a big bummer that it's soft locked like this, but I sent the soft lock directly to the developers and I've been told by somebody at Santa Monica Studio that apparently it's been fixed, which is pretty cool. I did encounter one more soft lock that we'll get to at the very end because it literally happened in like the last 30 seconds of the game before you reach the true ending which was really frustrating but we'll we'll get there now once you've climbed the mountain you reach a small area where there's a lake in the cliffside there also appears to be some sort of diving bell so you go over after collecting some basic materials around this area and the diving bell drops you down into the water soon after you drop down you're approached by a freaking mermaid this is the lady that they were talking about but it's strange, she doesn't look at or talk to Brock at all. She just reaches in while staring at Kratos, takes the objects that you've collected, including drop near, pulls away from the diving bell a little bit, swirls her arms around to make some sort of weird spear salad, and then in a matter of moments, there's a freaking spear crafted. The spear is then imbued with Kratos' blood and she gives it to him. This thing takes the form of a ring that he keeps on his hand, but it can summon infinite spears as long as he's wearing it. Now, initially I was like, oh, well, that's kind of stupid. Like, why is that going to defeat Heimdall? Can't he just read their minds and realize that there's a spear that they're going to use that he can just keep throwing and he'll never run out of it? Can't he just deal with that? Apparently not. Apparently the whole point of Dropnir is that it overwhelms Heimdall's senses because it technically has infinite duplication abilities, which is just like taking a computer and then overloading its RAM with a ton of bloatware. That's kind of what they're doing to Heimdall. There's also a really important portion here with Brock that I'm going to let just play out for narrative reasons because I don't think I could do it justice. So here it is. Galfifater almost forgot. Ma'am, it would be an honor you might bless you first. Are you, uh... Hello? Hello? The fuck was that? She acts like I weren't even here. Mermaids don't speak to our corporeal bodies. They speak to a part of our soul. A part specifically you might be missing. Fuck. Fuck! Damn it, Sindri, you lion's cat scrubber! I knew it. I died. I fucking died! The fuck you want? It needs a blessing. Yeah, well, the one to give us the blessing just fucked off into the tomb. It needs the blessing of a great blacksmith. What? No, no, I can't bless shit. I don't have all my soul bits. It, the blessing wouldn't mean squat. It is the nature of a thing that matters, not its form. This weapon strike true. May it be wielded with wisdom. May it be put down when its job is done.
this whole moment just broke my heart because, of course, Brock is realizing that Sindri lied to him. Sindri kind of pulled a Joel from The Last of Us and chose to keep Brock alive, even though Brock might not have chosen that because he forfeited his soul in the process. Uh, and this is going to be, uh, once again, important later. But also, it's really freaking sweet that... Kratos asks Brock to bless it. It's just, it's super, super adorable. And I was like, okay, okay, Kratos, you, you sweet-hearted silver tongue sweet talker. Come on. Oh, so sweet. Now, the spear itself in terms of combat is also pretty straightforward and actually really enjoyable to use. You can throw it and also use it as a melee weapon. But once the spears have been thrown, there's a set capacity for how many can be out and out active at any given time. Furthermore, once these active spears have been implanted in enemies or in the environment, you can then hold down triangle to activate the spear and cause it to basically explode. Or I should say you can tap triangle to quickly activate them or later with abilities, you can charge it up, hold that triangle button down and it'll stomp the spear into the ground and it'll cause a bigger explosion. It's just up to you, whatever you want to do based on your play style, what skills and upgrades you have, blah, blah, blah. But all told, it plays really, really well. Furthermore, this thing can also be used to traverse those strange glowy gold sections of the map that we've been locked out of prior to this moment. The devs then give you a handful of combat encounters to get used to the spear because you're going to need it when you take on Heimdall, so you better get comfortable with it. You eventually meet back up with Freya and you can take on some more side quests if you want, or you can go back to Sindri's house and get started on the main story once again. Once back at the house, Kratos, exhausted, takes everything off, including his shirt, Oh my, and lays down to get some rest. I will say it was a little weird seeing Kratos without all of the armor on. It it was just a little weird. I, there's nothing else to say. I was just like, oh, that yeah, that's what he looks like. Okay, cool. <laughs> In a quiet moment where you can actually see Kratos tearing up, he holds the little baggie that carried his wife's ashes and you see him reflecting on what he's lost. Not just Faye, but also his son. There's then a really moving cutscene with Faye once again, where you're wandering around the areas that we explored in the first game, and there's some dialogue exchanged about protecting their son and always being there for him, something which Kratos clearly feels guilty about right now since Atreus is, well, gone. It's also gotta kinda hurt that he went off to the All-Father, like, he left his father for the All-Father. Like he, he upgraded. He went to like the big daddy, not not little daddy Kratos, but like the big boy daddy. <laughs> that, that's got to sting just a little bit. Kratos then wakes up in a cold sweat and begins punching the wall very carefully, might I add, as a part of a training exercise that he worked with Atreus on, which leads to one of the cooler transitions in the entire game. And just like that, we're back playing with Atreus. We meet with the Allfather and he tells us that we need to go to Helheim to find the last mask piece. He's going to send us with Thrud to help us find it. And also Heimdall is going to follow close behind. To put it simply, he's the resident babysitter for this sequence. He doesn't actually stay with you. He goes off and does his own thing. He says he has some assignment by the Allfather. You then spend some time fighting your way through Helheim with Thrud. And it's honestly pretty cool because it's her first assignment out of Asgard. She's wanting to become a Valkyrie one day to make her grandfather proud. But this is the first time she's actually been let out of the house to do it and she's really enjoying it. It's pretty cool actually to see Atreus take on the leadership role and even the role of the teacher showing her the ropes of going on a mission like this. Now eventually the duo comes across the last remnant of the mask and it seems to be underneath a gigantic wolf dog thing. This adorable monstrosity has been chained up for a very long time so Atreus and Thrud decide to let him loose 
to try to get underneath him to the mask remnant. Once you set him free, he breaks the chain off and starts rummaging through Helheim without a care in the world. The duo looks around real quick for the mask fragment, but it's nowhere to be found. And that's because it's with the big scary wolfy dude. And you see that wolf is known by the name of Garm. Yeah, he's able to tear holes and tears in the fabric of the realms, creating holes between them, basically destroying all of reality. <laughs> Heimdall shows up soon after to tell you what a dumbass you are for letting it loose. And honestly, he's he's kind of right. Yeah, this was a big dumb, dumb move. And let me be clear. I think Heimdall does get a bad rap. He is kind of a major dick. He's pompous, rude, maniacal, and just not a nice human being or god, I guess. But this whole time, he's doing his best to protect Asgard. He's doing his job. He's following the rules. He's able to see through Atreus and he knows that he's doing this double bluff thing and he's going to try to betray everybody. He's trying to warn the Allfather. The Allfather doesn't seem to want to listen because the Allfather thinks he knows better himself. And he's just doing his job. Like, I get it. He's a prick. And I agree with that. He's a snob. Yes, I agree with that. But I, I don't think that he's just like a totally unlikable or unrespectable character. I think he actually is respectable. He's doing the best job that he can. He's just able to read everybody's minds in the process, which certainly uh, brings on a bit of arrogance, shall we say. After he's done expressing extreme displeasure, Heimdall escorts you back to the Allfather. After a brief conversation, Atreus says that he wants to return home. Odin isn't like screaming angry. He doesn't let it loose here that he's a terrible person because he's still playing the long game. He knows that this was a big oopsie and that it's going to cause a lot of pain and destruction. He's not worried about that. He's worried that this is going to trigger Ragnarok and be one of the big steps that leads to it. But you know what? He needs Atreus more than he needs to yell at Atreus. So he's just going to keep a calm demeanor for the time being. He says, of course, you're not a prisoner here. You can go but I'm going to need the mask back. So Atreus gives it back and also the sword, which Odin requests to stay there. Atreus is then transported back to his house in Midgard, goes through the door to travel back to Sindri's house, at which point he's immediately greeted with all of the Hellwalkers that have started to come in through one of the tears. Nobody really says anything. They just ask you to start helping them fight. So you do that. You then transition back and begin controlling Kratos and you fight everybody off. After the dust settles, you reunite with Atreus and there's some dialogue that's exchanged. Kratos asks Atreus what he wants to be referred to as, which is a callback to the previous conversation that caused the runaway, where he asked if he was a liar and deceiver or actually his son. Atreus runs up and hugs his father and you can see Kratos is a little stunned by this, doesn't know what to do, but embraces him all the same. Right after this, Atreus explains to everybody that he's responsible for what's going on with the realm tears and that it's all tied up in Garm being allowed to run loose in Helheim. So Kratos decides that he's going to go off with Atreus to fix this problem once and for all. Everybody else stays behind and you get to return to the good old style of gameplay just with Kratos and Atreus. You travel to Helheim and begin seeking out Garm, eventually discovering him and starting a boss fight. I thought this boss fight was really good. It's challenging, but it feels fair and it's also visually pretty spectacular. This is not easy to pull off, specifically boss fights that are gigantic with huge enemies with camera angles that don't really work too well, but they manage to pull it off fantastically well here. Eventually you're able to wrap the chain around his throat and snap his neck. He drops dead and you leave, collecting some different materials before you make your final escape. But soon after, 
Garm comes back. You see, he doesn't have a soul, uh, as it turns out, so you can't just kill Garm by, like, stabbing him a bunch. Uh, it's not that easy. <laughs> I'm sorry, all I could think of this whole sequence was that thing from South Park, um, where they're talking about the guy in the World of Warcraft episode that has no life because he plays World of Warcraft like 22 out of 24 hours in the day. And then they all pause and say, How do you kill that which has no life? So now that I've shown you that, you're never going to be able to think of anything else whenever you see this boss fight with Garm, because that's all I could think of the entire time we fought this. You know, How do you kill that which has no life? <laughs> so there's another phase to the boss fight that ensues. Eventually, Kratos is able to hold him down. Atreus climbs up the chains to his head and tries something a little unorthodox. You see, all the way back with Angerboda in the grandmother's house, there was something really interesting that happened. You see, back there with Angerboda, Atreus found a dead snake on the wall. Well, not quite dead. It basically had its soul ripped out by her grandma. But he took one of the marbles that Angerboda showed him and actually infused the soul hidden within that marble into the snake. And it reanimated, left, and disappeared. We didn't see it again. But what this established was that Atreus is able to take captured souls in objects like this, and then he's able to reinfuse them into a soulless creature. Understandably startled by this newfound ability, he gave the marbles back to Angerboda for safekeeping. They're not really seen again until the end of the game, so it's not really important that he doesn't have them on his person this whole time, but you know, it, it's whatever. I guess it's a good detail to throw out now that I realize I forgot to mention it earlier. So there you go. <laughs> but going back to Helheim, this gigantic soulless monster Garm doesn't have a soul, like I mentioned. So Atreus gets the idea to take his dagger, which Angerboda let him know seemed to have a soul stored within it. And he stabs Garm in the forehead with it while saying the same spell or chant or whatever that she taught him to say in order to infuse the snake with the soul that was within the marble. Yeah, you remember back at the beginning, those four little like particle orb things that drifted out of Fenrir when it died. And then one of those orbs went into his dagger. Guess what? Yeah, the soul of Fenrir was infused into the body of Garm, which is how you get the gigantic form of Fenrir that we all know and love from Norse mythology. And I thought that this was just a really cool way of doing this. I mean, the whole game I was waiting for Fenrir to come back. I was like, did they really just take this iconic character or being in Norse mythology, Fenrir, and then just kill him off as like a quick side plot in the first 20 minutes of the game. Did they really do that? No, 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 no. They bring it all the way back at the end or close to the end of the game right here. And it's just masterfully done. I loved this moment. It was a great way of defeating Garm. And I, I thought this was great. And goodness gracious, that's a good boy. That's such a good boy. One little tidbit that will also be important here is that because Fenrir now embodies Garm's body, Fenrir is able to tear freely between realms willy-nilly whenever he wants, wherever he wants to go. So that's that's also probably going to be important later. <laughs> At this point in the story, we hit a bit of a lull because you can feel everything is inevitably coming up to the crisis that is Ragnarok, but you're prompted with the option to pursue a lot of side content if you wish. Freya returns to her homeland in order to help her brother prepare for the inevitable fight against Asgard, but you're allowed to go wherever you want and do whatever you want. I messed around for a good long while doing a bunch of side content, but after a few hours, I decided to 
return back to the main story. Once again, as I mentioned earlier, I thought that this worked really, really well in terms of motivating side content. It felt natural to go off and dink around and explore a little bit before the inevitable occurred. And I just want to say again, yeah, this was another great natural pause in the story. Kratos doesn't feel the need to go after Heimdall now that his son is safe in his keeping, so he doesn't feel like he has to go and kill him, though perhaps that might change. He keeps the door open. You know, Kratos is a flexible guy. You know, flexible, like really nice fabric on a high quality tee from LukeStevensTV.com. Go shop for merch right now and you can get a piece of merch with 16 times the detail that you would normally see in a piece of merchandise from a YouTuber. 16 times the detail. Thanks, Todd. Eventually, you go off to help Freya and Freya, her brother. Soon after arriving, you can actually meet an old friend, Hildisvini. If you don't remember who this is, it's the boar that you accidentally shot in the first game. <laughs> That's right, this guy can shapeshift and transform all over the place, and he previously took the form of a boar that you accidentally shot as Atreus back in the first game. But this time around, he's transformed back into a human form, and, you know, he's a regular guy. He's just been shot. <laughs> I thought this was really cool. It took me a second uh, to recognize Hildesfini. Who's Hildesfini? What is that name? Why is that so familiar? And they lifted up his cloak and showed like the arrow hole in his side. And I was like, oh my God. And he says something like, oh, Mimir, you're more of a pig than I ever was. And yeah, it all clicked in that moment, but it was cool. It's cool. It's a good touch. Now, while in this realm, Kratos and Atreus seek out the wolves that are going to help reset the moon in the sky. This was something we saw in an earlier prophecy in one of the shrines. So we seek out the wolves. Eventually, Atreus shoots an arrow in the sky and the wolves chase it, causing it to immediately transform into night. This began one of the most underutilized gameplay systems that are present here, and that is the ability to transform the realm between day and night using these little stations where you can summon the wolves. It was a really cool idea because there's some plant life that only grows at night and then when it transforms into day, it shrivels so you can navigate around levels differently. It's a cool idea, but it's barely used after this like hour and a half section and it's just kind of a bummer that it wasn't utilized a little bit more. There's a handful of copy and pasted boss fights that we've already engaged with earlier such as a copy and pasted Drekki v Drekki v Kratos v Atreus fight and there's a bunch of other little side activities but eventually you end up in a large fighting arena after helping Freya and Heimdall appears. He's riding his big scary monster beast once again but this time Kratos is the one the player is controlling, and he has that scary spear, which probably means that he stands a half chance of beating Heimdall. And sure enough, this kicks off the two-phase boss fight against him, one phase being on the mountain, the other phase being on foot. Both heavily rely on your use of the spear, and more specifically, throwing the spear, landing it, and then using your triangle press to detonate them, dealing damage and stun. The fight goes on for a while, but eventually Kratos lands the first punch, and you can see just how shocked Heimdall is. And this causes him to begin freaking out, losing focus, and he falls right into your trap. What ensues is one of the most satisfying boss fights in the game because it's challenging, but it also feels fair and it's satisfying more so than most boss fights because this guy really deserves it. He taunts you the whole time and seeing him slowly realize that he's not as special as he thought he was is immensely gratifying. Eventually you get prompted to do a finisher and I'll just let this play out in its entirety because once again, it just feels good. Fuck! That's all this is! Oh, 
What is going on in that empty little head? Oh, no, no, no. You are going to spare me out of pity! <laughs> Let it go, you may live. Is this about the little runt? Oh, now I am definitely going to gut him! This is your final warning. I don't think a warning is going to cut it. You think you get to just walk away? No. That is not how this works. You do not get to decide my fate! You are dead, sunshine. Yeah, we're not done yet. He has a magic arm now. He's a magic guy. You proceed to beat the ever-living crap out of him once again, and then this final finisher, the real one, happens. I'll let it play. This isn't who you want to be! You can just see on Kratos' face that he is like, oh, probably shouldn't have done that. Oops, that was... Oops. <laughs> because that one event is basically what triggers the beginning of Ragnarok. Kratos snapped a little bit. Eh, he, Heimdall also kind of had it coming, but you know what? In this effort to avoid prophecy, every step of the way, they're just regularly fulfilling it. They can't stop it. They're just being who they are. And as the Norns said when Kratos and Freya visited them, they're creatures of habit, and they're utterly predictable. Regardless, you regroup with Freya and everybody else. You take a ride in a magical blue boat. Some random guy jumps off the boat. And then once you've landed, you help Freya patch up Freyr, who's been injured. And Kratos shows Atreus what he got from Heimdall. The super special Galahorn, which is what's going to be used to summon all of the realms together in Asgard, for Ragnarok. And this is one of those moments where you just feel like everything is starting to reach its climax. Everything's built and built and built for like 30 to 40 hours of gameplay, depending on how long you've been taking and how you've been pacing the side content through the game. And it's just now reaching the pinnacle. You feel all of the characters are super stressed out. They know the end of the world is coming. They know that it's happening, especially after Heimdall's death. It's real. And so, feeling this same tension, Atreus decides that he needs to go off and collect the last pieces of the mask that he tells his father is very crucial they keep out of the hands of Odin. Kratos, showing some real trust in his son, agrees. This is mostly thanks to the bonding and talks that they had within Helheim when they were saving Garm and then turning him into Fenrir. You know, 
It's the whole thing. <laughs> but once again, it shows that over the course of this game, Kratos and Atreus have gone from totally distrusting each other, not feeling as though they can actually share that information between each other, and then embracing it and deciding that they need to work together. In Helheim, Kratos and Atreus had a conversation about the mural, about the shrines, and what was foretold by the giants. And they decide, you know what? There are all of these predictions, you know, there, there's prophecy, there's fate, as it were, but we need to just do what needs to be done. Not because it's been prophesied, but because it needs to be done. And if what we need to do is against the prophecy, so be it. If it's in line with the prophecy, so be it. But as long as we are obsessed with this preordained knowledge, we're not actually going to live our lives. We're just pawns on some big chessboard and we don't have any free will. We're going to do what we need to do. And that's that, you know, doing what you need to do, like ordering a 16 times the detail mug from LukeStevensTV.com. <laughs> okay, I'll stop. I'll stop. I'm... <laughs> I've been watching some Linus Tech Tips, and they're so good at the random ad plugs, you know, where they're just like, oh, yes, this thing tastes really good out of this water bottle from LTTstore.com or whatever it is. And I, you know what? One day I'll get there. But right now it's a little clunky. I'll give you that. So Atreus goes back to Asgard, speaks with Odin, gets permission to go off and find the last piece of the mask, takes the two pieces that they've already collected since it's going to guide him to the last remnant. You get to participate in a bar fight with Thor, which was actually one of the highlights of the game for me. Again, things I never expected to be here. A bar fight with Thor and his daughter, who would have predicted that this would have been in this game? Nobody, but it's great. But after the bar fight, you travel to Niflheim, you seek out the last piece of the mask, you find it, and I'll just let this cutscene play out because it's very important what happens. It's here. Gotcha. Phew, that was close. Um, thanks, Thor. Wasn't about to lose that match. Loki, we did it. We are on the verge of great things, all of our work together. You're welcome. I'm sorry, you are here, why? His father murdered Heimdall, for said he has proof, take him. No, leave him alone, I command it. You said no more Aesir blood would be spilled. You said family comes first. You don't think that this is retribution for him being here? He's put your granddaughter in danger. He's made your son miserable. Loki didn't kill Heimdall. His father did. Your daughter is old enough to make her own mistakes. And your husband started drinking again all on his own. Dismissed! You two, a word. Can't you see what's happening? He's not protecting us. Magni, Modi, our boys. We used to tell them stories by the fire. Do you remember? We would carve those wooden horses. We would play and laugh until the sun sank and they fell asleep in our laps. They were thrown at the Allfather's problems like brittle knives to a mountain face. And for what? What if Thrut's next? Hmm. 
That was badass, wasn't it? Things, things get crazy real quick. <laughs> now you know damage and drama is certainly inevitable. Uh, and it's even more inevitable after you return to Sindri's home right after this, because this is when things really start to get utterly insane. Once again, I'm not going to try to do this cutscene justice. I'm going to let it play, and then we will offer our thoughts after the fact. Here it is. This mask. The easy answers that it promises. I know this. Shortcuts always have a price. Atreus, you have carried it. What do you think? I think it's a chance. At worst, we'll have something Odin wants as leverage. At best, if it really gives us all the answers, then we can make our own path. Nobody has to die. Grand. Now all we need is a way to Asgard. <laughs> I know I've been a burden to you all. I know you've questioned why you even pulled me out of that hole. I have to. But it's clear now. This is what I'm needed for. This is my purpose. One last time, I will pick up my spear and I will lead us to Asgard. Excuse me, but if you got a way to Asgard, where's that idea been this whole fucking while? That's not that a fair question, brother. You was held as God. You would have gotten us all killed. And we needed to give Loki time to find his destiny. Here it is. It's all led to this. If we can get inside, I'm going after Odin. I will not stop you. We can do both. Spot on, brother. If the mask doesn't give us an out, we'll still have the drop on him. Works for me. Let's do it then. And quickly before he sees us coming. He does hate surprises. Slow down, you damn spruce. I still want to hear the details on this uh, new way to Asgard you got. Spill it! It's an ancient path. We can't reach it from here. Where then? Let me collect my things and I'll show you. You ain't got no things. And where are you going with that mask, rock? That belongs to the kid. He earned it. All you done was make passable dirt soup. Brock, it's okay. No, it ain't. This ain't right. All the pieces ain't welding together true. Like, what's with him calling you Loki anyway? You know that ain't his name. Hey, I'm talking to you. You'll never shut up. Brock. All the things, Odin. Let go of the boy and face me. Tell your brother to throw me the mask, and you've got a deal. Stop moving. Freya, if he dies. Now, now. Wasn't part of the plan, but if he dies, we are square for Heimdall. And honestly, you got a bargain. I will kill you. Plan on that. Mm -hmm. 
So nice spending time with you again. Freya, please. Uh, uh, uh. Can't be in two places at once, Frig. Hey! I don't move, you don't move. Don't do anything to work right. I regret many things. Killing you will not be one of them. I am in control, here! Throw me the mask, now! Too bad, son. Looks like war after all. Please, you have to save him. You have to. He can't. You can't. Maybe if I go back to the lake. Stop me. I know what you've done, and I forgive you. But you gotta stop. You gotta let go. Bro. This whole time. So, uh, what do we do now? Now? Now we kill Odin and anyone who gets in our way. You can't run away from this, Kratos. Odin won't stop until we stop him! We need you here! Yeah. I know. I know. <laughs> so for one, elephant in the room. Tyr is Odin. He has been the entire time. He set up this elaborate ruse to make... Atreus and everybody else think that Tyr was in fact still alive so that he could take Tyr's form transporting back and forth between Asgard and Sindri's house using a crow and he did this because he wanted to keep his enemies close. Pretty brilliant if you ask me. And of course this explains all of the strange behavior that we've seen from the moment that Tyr 
began following us around. It explains his weird dialogue seeming to drive a peg between characters during the family dinners that would occur. It explains why he wanted to travel with them to Alfheim to see the shrines for himself instead of just relying on what they told him after the fact. It explains why he didn't want to get his hands dirty in fights. He wanted to just sit on the sidelines claiming he was a pacifist when in reality he just didn't want to be involved in killing his own men unnecessarily. Even the argument with Kratos and Atreus that resulted in Atreus running away to Asgard and then in turn to Odin was started primarily because Tyr kept poking the bear, kept making Atreus feel like he was actually the champion and that he had a role to play in Ragnarok while Kratos is like, no, chill out, dude. My son is not going to cause Ragnarok. Sit down, bro. And it all clicks into place. It all makes sense. This is also the first moment we get to see Odin for who he really is. And that is that when cornered, he will do whatever he has to do to get out and to end up ahead. And that's what he did to poor Brock. We've also got to hand it to him that Brock is the one that was smart enough to start seeing through the charade of Tyr. He knew that he was being inconsistent, that he was seemingly suggesting plans that didn't make sense and that were not rational and that seemed to favor Odin. He puts it together before anybody else, even before Mimir, and he paid for it. You also remember I mentioned that that whole thing with the mermaid was going to be important uh, because, you see, Brock doesn't have a soul. That means there's no afterlife for him. There's no bringing him back with an ancient magic like they did with Mimir. There's none of that because there's no soul there. I mean, just imagine the overwhelming guilt that Sindri feels in this moment because of his choice to somewhat selfishly bring his brother back after he drowned. His brother doesn't get the benefit of an afterlife. He did that. His choices resulted in that. And now he's dead and he will never see him again. His, his closest friend and ally, his brother, they sure bickered a lot, but that's just what brothers do sometimes. Everybody in the house is shaken by this event. Kratos, Atreus, everybody. And of course, Sindri himself teleports away with Brock's body to grieve. After this happens, Kratos and Atreus return home to just not do anything. They just want to curl up in a ball and ignore all of reality. There's a tangible silence between the two, but it's ended when Atreus tells Kratos that he wants to go hunting. So they do just that after they return home in Midgard. This whole sequence is a callback to the beginning of the first game. If you recall, the first thing we did with Atreus when playing as Kratos was to go hunting. Just like before, we're following Atreus around as he begins to seek the deer that they're hunting, getting his mind off of everything. There's even some copy and pasted dialogue which makes this reference all the clearer. Eventually you find the deer and are prompted with the same aiming mechanic as the last game. You lock on the target, but right before you take the shot, Kratos interjects and this happens. Why? That was running. And so are we. I don't understand. When an animal is wounded, it must stop the bleeding or it will die. We have been wounded in this. This is a distraction. It's my fault. No. 
You should find Sindri. I have a pretty good idea where he might be. Lead. And this is why God of War Ragnarok and God of War 2018 pair so great together. And it's why, honestly, I can't wait for a few years from now when I go back after having some time and I play through both games back to back, beginning to end. Because as a package, there's a character arc. And in each individual game, there are character arcs. Just this scene shows how much these characters have grown from the last game at the beginning. How they deal with grief, how they deal with fate and the inevitability of their choices. It's really masterfully done. And I don't know what else I can say about it other than it's utterly tremendous. I mean, all of the dialogue, all of the plot points, everything. It has like a lot of detail. Like, dare I say, more than like four times the detail or eight times, the, like almost 16 times the detail. Okay, I'll shut up. Eventually, you'll find your way back to Sindri's house where you meet up with everybody. It's agreed that Ragnarok is coming and that the only thing they can do is to try and prepare for it. So everybody goes off to complete their various tasks. For some people, it's collecting more armies and soldiers. For Sindri, it's getting the dwarves on their side. And for Kratos and Atreus, it's to go back to Muspelheim and speak with Surtur to get Ragnarok underway once and for all. So you do just that. You travel to Muspelheim, you fight a bunch of enemies, including these phantom creatures, which we'll see more in the Muspelheim challenges that we'll discuss in a little bit. But eventually, after a lot of combat, you come upon the man, the myth, the legend himself, Surtur. This is the guy we've been looking for. He guides you down underneath Muspelheim to the spark of the world, which is, needless to say, pretty visually impressive. And you walk all the way with him to the cliff right at the edge of the spark of the world. He then guides you through the ritual that will cause him to become Ragnarok itself, asking you to take the blades of chaos which have been infused with his flames and jab them straight into his heart. You do so, he falls back, and then you're immediately assaulted by Hrist and Mist, two Valkyrie. You then get a pretty badass boss fight between the two of them with an interesting shared health pool mechanic. And honestly, I will say this was one of the most interesting boss fights of the game. There aren't a ton of these Valkyrie type fights in this game because they kind of played it out a lot in the last one. There's, of course, the Nya. I know it's GNA, but I like to say Nya, uh, queen of the Valkyrie fight that you can engage with in Muspelheim after the main credits roll. But this was just a nice change of pace, especially after the hordes and waves and waves of enemies that you've been fighting through Muspelheim and for the last few levels. Eventually, you'll defeat them with the help of Atreus transforming into a bear in what has to be one of the coolest finishers of this whole Norse saga. I mean, just like, look at this, father and son, it's badass. In this moment, I will avoid using the term bear, <laughs> even though, I mean, come on. It, it's like they're begging for it. <laughs> it's not boy anymore. It's your, your bear. You're my bear. But having completed the ritual and defeated the Valkyrie, it seems as though everything is complete and Ragnarok is ready to go. So you fight your way back to a portal, travel to Midgard, meet with Freya and one of her generals, Sigrun. You might remember her from the end of... Uh, you know, the Valkyrie quest line, the last game, you kind of, 
kind of beat the ever-living crap out of her if you finish that quest line, but you know what? She doesn't seem to be holding a grudge, so we'll move on. In this brief conversation between the crew, Kratos is asked if he will lead the armies, to which he expresses some hesitation, but he's not immediately out of the running. Basically, he says that he'll sleep on it after Freya asks him to carefully consider the option, because they need a true general to help them win this fight. Kratos then goes off to his tent to lay down, but even though he has his own tent, Atreus comes in and asks if he can sleep in the tent with his father. They both know of the prophecy, and they know that this very well could be the last time that they actually spend a quiet moment together. There's also a really cute story here that Kratos tells, which I will let him just, I'll let him handle it. So here it goes. When I will tell you a story. If I fall asleep, promise you'll finish it tomorrow? Of course. Now, close your eyes. There was an old man who chopped wood for his village. Every evening he bore the logs on his back and delivered them to his people. But the logs were heavy and he grew weaker as time went. And one day he threw down the logs as he could no longer bear their weight. And he, he called for death to come to him. And when death arrived, We then get one last section where we get to see Faye and hear her wisdom one more time. She offers him one last piece of wisdom, which is to open his heart to the suffering of the world so that it becomes more worthy of living within. This is, of course, a reference to the line of dialogue that was used in trailers and that was also told to Atreus while climbing up that cliffside after the Balder fight. You know the line where he says that you need to close your heart to the suffering of your enemies and to the people that stand in your path. This is a direct reference to that saying, no, don't shut your heart to it. That might be what you had to do as a general in Sparta or as the god of war 
but that's not how you create a world worth living in. You open your heart to it, you don't close it. They share a tender moment, and then she lays him back in his bed. He doesn't wake up in a cold sweat this time, but rather he wakes up looking quite anxious. He wakes up Atreus, grabs his weapons, looks up and realizes that it's time to do this. He also tells Freya and Sigrun that he will happily be the general that leads the armies into Ragnarok. You have one last chance to customize your armor and equipment before the final battle, and then you push into the travel room, which we got to know all too well in the last game, but we haven't actually had the chance to use yet. It's kind of a cool way to come full circle, to go back in here and to have this be the final way that you transport yourself to Asgard. Kratos gives a rousing speech and then blows the Gjallarhorn, which opens up all of the realms and allows the armies to start pouring into Asgard. Once you enter, you see all of hell is descending on Odin's home. And the next half hour of gameplay is utterly chaotic, as you would expect with the world literally ending. <laughs> you fight your way through waves and waves of enemies as you try to push up on the war machines that those dwarves that we saw earlier were crafting for Odin. You're also trying to clear some of the travel doors so that more reinforcements can come and help, but it doesn't seem that we're too successful. Even the world serpent takes a tumble and knocks out the Alfheim door, which means that there's no more elves coming to help. Despite the fact that Freyr was able to unite the Dark and Light Elves to come and fight against Odin together, setting aside their disagreements, at least for the time being. Undeterred, we continue pushing through and eventually come up on a ledge where we see one of the most epic shots of the entire game. In the distance, we can see what became of our friend Surtur. Yeah, he turned into a gigantic blue monster man, also known as Ragnarok, and he is going to slowly destroy the entire realm. But he's being held off by these machines that the dwarves helped craft. Sindri showed up just a moment before this and said that the dwarves weren't coming to help, but that they didn't need to. Specifically, he said that no more dwarves would have their blood shed if he could help it. So he goes up and he takes care of business himself. A couple of tidbits here. First and foremost is, of course, Sindri destroying the war machines. My understanding of this, or at least what I'm reading into this, is that the dwarves specifically built these war machines for Odin with a weakness built into them so that they could be easily destroyed by one dwarf, in this case Sindri, using this tool that he brings. That's what I took it as. Maybe this is just a super secret special tool that he has that can be hit with the hammer and destroy all war machines in question. But I don't think that's what this is supposed to be. I think this whole time Odin was trying to enslave the dwarves and they were not having it. And they betrayed him and built in all of these weaknesses to these machines without him realizing it, which is pretty funny. Right under his nose, they they betrayed him. There's also that village where we met that young man earlier as Atreus before we climbed up the wall to go into Asgard for the first time. And that village on the lower level was placed there by Odin specifically so there would be a bunch of civilians in between the forces that Kratos and everybody would bring to fight Odin and Odin. Like, it's it's pretty messed up. Like, he just lined up all of the women and children in front of him like human shields. Right after Sindri takes down the war machines, Atreus turns his head and is trying to close his heart to the suffering of those civilians. But it's this moment where Kratos takes the advice that Faye gave him in the dream and applies it. Oh, close your heart to it. Close your heart. Who are they? Midgardians. Odin took them in. They shouldn't be here. They're not soldiers. Odin put them in our path to die. It's war. 
Wars are won by those who are willing to sacrifice everything. What, what are you doing? Size of that thing? I think we're gonna win. I mean, they don't kill us first. Why have you stopped? Ragnarok is here. We finally have Odin right where we. We will stop Odin. But we did not come to sacrifice the innocent. We will breach the wall at Rimpa's flaw. With what army? Petraeus and I will be enough. That's suicide. It may be. But we will die seeking justice, not vengeance. Can that weapon break open the flaw? Only one way to find out. You three, get those people to safety wherever you can find it. We will see if done. Frey and I will do what we can to slow Ragnarok. He was not mindless before. See if he will listen to reason. <laughs> Odin will not get away. If he does, so help me. I know. Valky! Once again, we get to see more character growth and change on the part of Kratos. You see that he's not actually closing his heart to their suffering. He embraces it. He's learning the lessons that Faye wanted to teach him. And also, the delivery in this scene is just tremendous in and of itself. Like, I'm filming this before the Game Awards takes place, so I don't know if Christopher Judge won actor or performance of the year, I think is what it's called, but... Goodness gracious, I think he deserves it. Like the nuance he brought to Kratos this time around is just remarkable. And this is one of those scenes where he just nails it. We push on as Atreus, eventually being stopped by Thrud, who's also talked to by her mother and told that Odin is not actually the grandfather that she should be fighting for. She says that Odin is actually kind of a terrible person. <laughs> 
and that he is not somebody to fight for, regardless of what duty you feel obligated to preach. And just like that, Throod and everybody else decide to turn on Odin and begin helping you, which is kind of a big deal. Once this has been settled, Sindri applies a weak point to the gate, and then Atreus fires the sonic arrows at that point, which causes the entire door and that section of the wall to collapse. You push on through, fighting waves and waves of enemies in a truly epic fashion, and as you do this, there's all sorts of small references that you can pick up on if you're paying attention. You can see Thor and Jormungandir fighting off in the distance, which of course fulfills the prophecy that Mimir told you about in the last game. But right after this, Thor comes in and decides he's had enough of Kratos. He pushes you down to the same arena where you first fought Heimdall as Atreus, and you basically have a take two on your boss fight from the beginning of the game, but this time with many more abilities, and it's also just freaking epic. Eventually, the fight ends in a stalemate. Kratos probably could keep pushing on and potentially even kill Thor himself, but he decides to pause. Kratos says that Thor's daughter his son calls a friend, and that he's not going to kill the father of his son's friend because he believes that his son can trust him. It's also here that Kratos tells Thor that they need to break the cycle for the sake of their children and be better than the gods that came before. And this, of course, tugs at the heartstrings of Thor, who the entire game has been struggling with feelings of mediocrity, especially when he was confronted by Thrud after that bar fight that happened earlier. And it's at this very moment that Odin shows up, and I'll just let this play. Why isn't he dead? Are you talking? Who told you to do that? You don't talk. You don't think. I think you kill. It's a simple fucking concept. Sif was right about you. I just didn't want to see it. What is this? Are you broken? I am your father. Take the hammer and kill who I tell you to kill. I did not want this. No! Rude. This was all their fault. They've done this to us, to our family. Looks like I gotta do everything around here. And just like that, we're transported into the boss fight. It's like the first phase of the end of the game. Oh, it's so good. Okay, buckle up. This boss fight's crazy. There's multiple phases to it, multiple levels. Everything about it is just great. I'm also very thankful that they didn't feel the need to sprinkle this full of enemies and different enemy types. You know, the types of boss fights like this, where they just sprinkle in tons of different enemies for you to fight in addition to the boss, who's already pretty difficult. I never found that fun. I always found it extremely annoying and... Uh, yeah, this is no exception. The first phase of the fight ends with Kratos and Atreus trapped, though. But right as Odin thinks he's gotten them captured and finished, something interesting happens. Yeah, you remember that noose that Freya took off of the tree when they went to see the Norns? 
Well, she has it. And because it has a special magical ability or, or tie to it or something or other, I don't understand how it works because, you know, it's magic. She's able to hold it up and it strangles Odin in the process with like runic magic or something. It's super cool. But she gets a little cocky. It doesn't work. She loses focus or something and Odin is able to destroy the floor beneath them, transferring them into the underground arena where that super special tear is. Seeing it in the distance, Odin lays down his staff and offers to let Atreus go straight up to it, peer in and see the unlimited knowledge that the rift possesses. They have all the pieces to the mask. They've been waiting for this moment. And all he has to do is to put the mask on and peer in. There's a long suspenseful pause as Odin and Kratos behind Atreus wait to see what he will do. He holds up the mask, but instead of putting it on, he breaks it. Then he drops the mask. It goes into the rift and it's gone. The rift is closed. The mask is gone. And Odin is understandably very upset. In effect, his life's work, his life's mission is for naught. Odin collects the noose, wraps it around his staff, and begins to fight Kratos, Freya, and Atreus all at the same time. The boss fight is epic and the finishers are nothing short of badass. And because it's very important, I will let this last little bit play out in its entirety without my rambling. So enjoy. <laughs> This was our chance, Loki. I could have had my answers. I could have learned the truth. You took that away from me. I could have made things better. We could have made the Nine Realms better. This was never about the realms or me. It was about you. You destroyed everything. My home, my family, my kingdom. You did those things, your choices. You killed your own son. It wasn't my choice. I had no choice. There's always a choice. You have to stop. You can choose to be better. No, I can't. I have to know what happens next. I will never stop. Why'd you have to say that? I swore I would never rob from you the choice between life and death. I have waited so long for this moment. And now that I'm here,
need this to make me whole. We stopped his madness. That's all that matters. supposed to be. Huh? There he is. Wake up, Atreus. Wake up. Glad you've come back to us. Uh, hi. Where, where is my father? Somewhere here in the Holt. He'll be glad to see you. Thanks, Hare. And just like that, we gain the golden trophy for the game. That's the end of the main story. We're about to enter the epilogue after a little bit of dialogue up here in a second. But my goodness, for one, I think it's important to reference, of course, the fulfillment or perhaps the reversal of the prophecy that we saw on the shrine at the end of the last game. And that has been omnipresent on players and Atreus and Kratos' minds for the entirety of this game. And that, of course, is the moment where Atreus is holding what he thought was his father while Odin stood over him and watched him. We, we thought that it was going to be Kratos being cradled dead in his arms while Odin stood in the distance and looked down proud of what his adopted son, I guess, had done. But it turns out that he was actually cradling the Allfather, not Kratos, and that the one looking over was the actual Allfather. 
uh, in the form of Kratos. And this is going to be clear again in just a moment with one last little thing that we see at the very, very end of the game. But to be clear, I think there's multiple theories to this, and I'm excited to see what you guys bring to the table in the comment section below the like button, because there's so much stuff and there's so many possible explanations of why the shrines showed clearly Kratos with the face paint and everything and why what ended up happening was completely different. It seems like in the process of breaking the mask and allowing the rift to be closed, there was a bucking of prediction in effect. He could have looked into that, seen the answers, and then just followed in the steps of those answered, fulfilling the future that was seen within it. But by breaking the mask, he said, no, we don't need all of this knowledge. We're going to live our lives with limited knowledge, embracing the unknown and also opening our hearts to those who are suffering. You know, it, it's a great fulfillment of all of the themes of the franchise thus far. And I think it works well, though it does leave many questions as to why specifically those shrines showed that one thing. Was it perhaps like a double bluff where they wanted Kratos and Atreus to think that this was going to be their fate, which in turn pushed them into this fate? which was the actual prophesied one, or was it actually that they bucked prophecy altogether? I'm not sure. I'm interested in hearing your thoughts. But the reason I say that Kratos may in fact be the actual all-father of this realm is because after you push through this cave system and all of these ruins, speaking to the various characters that you met along the way, you have a nice conversation with Freya, with Mimir, and with Angerboda and Fenrir, who of course saved you using that unique ability of Garms to tear rifts in whatever realm he wants to tear. You then find Kratos and Control swaps back to him. You climb up the way and find one last shrine, and inside of it is the story of Atreus and Kratos. After looking at it for a moment, Atreus tells his father that he needs to go out and find the other giants that are sprinkled through the realms. He says that they are his responsibility, which according to Angerboda, they are in fact his responsibility. Atreus says he needs to do this and that it scares him to do it, but it must be done. To which Kratos responds with encouragement. He knows that Atreus has grown a lot and that if anybody were capable of doing this, it's him. Atreus then climbs off up into the hills to go and seek out, with the help of Angerboda, the last of the giants. You then see Atreus turn around quite proud, but I did notice that his lower lip was quivering a little bit. I know, Kratos is a softie, I can see right through it. He then closes up the shrine, but before he leaves, he walks behind it, realizing that there's a double side. He opens it up, and on the far right panel is a depiction of Kratos, the god of war, standing on a pedestal being worshipped by all the people of the realms. He's stunned by this. He even begins to tear up at it. It's everything he ever dreamed of, that one day he as a god would be loved, not feared or hated. And this is why I said that it's perhaps the case that Kratos sort of took on the role of the actual all-father of the realms. He took on the role of not just the true father of Atreus, but also of the Allfather, because you can see in this mural or shrine a depiction of Kratos in that role, in that position, as the chief and head god of their pantheon, being worshipped by everybody in all of the realms. Or, you know, maybe it's just that they wanted to fake you out and make you think that they were going to kill Kratos, when in reality they never thought that they would. Maybe that's it, I don't know. If you have a theory, again, I want to read it below. Right after this, Freya and Mimir show up, 
and offer to go out with you and help you continue to repair the realms. The credits begin to play, you work your way down, and this is where you start beyond Ragnarok. At this point, the game is over. The story has reached its conclusion, the credits have rolled, and you are free to begin engaging in endgame content. But there's one more thing we have to do, and that is that we're told that there's going to be a funeral for Brock in the land of the dwarves, and that you are invited to attend. Now this was actually a moment where I ran into yet another soft lock right before the end of the game. Basically you attend Brock's funeral initially by going to the pub that we visited earlier. You know where Bear, the composer of the game's music, where he works? Yeah, we go back there and you're supposed to see all of the characters sitting there and then Brock's body. You agree to go out to the funeral, you'll meet everybody there. And then you travel there and everything is okay. But what happened for me when I played this is I went to the pub, I walked in, I listened to a couple of lines of dialogue, and then nothing happened. Basically, the female blacksmith that's been helping you since Brock died and Sindri's been out of commission, Lunda, she's supposed to be here too and exchange dialogue between Bear and between Durlin, but she didn't spawn in for me. So these characters just sit there and her dialogue never triggers, which never triggers their dialogue. So the moment you enter this pub, you're soft locked. You can't leave. There's no prompt to progress the conversation. There's no prompt to leave the building. You're just stuck. I thought that they were waiting for some like big reveal or something. They were taking their time and you're supposed to wait in silence or something out of respect for Brock. But after a few minutes, I realized, no, it's just broken. So I reloaded and then it worked fine. Lunda spawned in and everything worked fine. But that is another issue. I did email PlayStation about it. Apparently this one has also been fixed, but I thought I'd mention it. Once you arrive at the location though, you load Brock's body into the boat. At this very moment, Sindri shows up as Bear begins playing some music. I know his character has like an actual name, but I'm just gonna keep calling him Bear because it's it's Bear, I mean, come on. Sindri gives the most tragic look ever at his brother and prepares to send him off once and for all. And then Kratos helps him push it off into the water. They then ignite Freya's arrow and she shoots it up, igniting the boat, sending him off in a Viking funeral. Sindri then stumbles off into the distance and teleports away. There's also a really good line of dialogue here that ties back into something that happened earlier in the game. You see, back when you were exploring with Brock to go and find the mermaid, he tries to entertain Kratos and Mimir by giving them a riddle. And he asks them, the simple question, what grows bigger the more you take away? Kratos doesn't like doing riddles like this. Mimir finds the riddle really interesting and tries to figure it out, but it happened like 10 hours of gameplay ago, so most players will have forgotten by this point. But right after this happens, Mimir says this. A hole. What? Gets bigger the more you take away. And that is the true ending of God of War Ragnarok. It's the first time the camera has faded to black like this, and I think it's fair to say that this is the conclusive ending. And oh my God, it's just so freaking good. It's amazing. Like the whole story is so thoughtful, carefully thought out. The detail is remarkable. The performances are fantastic. I honestly don't know if I have a ton of points that I haven't expressed yet on the story, other than perhaps some intensive obfuscation on the part of the writers and seemingly intentionally confusing plot points and devices, such as the shrine that shows Kratos, but is actually going to be the Allfather when all is said and done. I don't totally understand how that worked, but you know what? There might be a theory. Again, 
leave your theories down below. But with that, we're ready to transition into a final concluding discussion of random tidbits and things that I didn't get a chance to talk about over the course of the analysis of the story. So with that, I'm going to do another costume change because I've been filming for hours and hours and hours at this point, and I will see you on the other side. I'll be right back. So after the base game is over, there's still a bunch of stuff you can do. You can go and complete the Muspelheim challenges, complete various favors around the realms, go to Brock's funeral, as I mentioned before. And there's other world events you can participate in as well if you haven't completed them yet, such as discovering Lingbacher, which is the gigantic whale-looking monster in the lake in Svartalfheim. One of the highlights for a lot of people, such as myself was taking on the Valkyrie Queen that Odin promoted. The word of warning, this lady is not to be messed with before you're at the proper level, otherwise you will get absolutely curb stomped. And of course, there's a bunch of other stuff you can do as well. There is a ton of content in this game, and realistically, if you want to 100% it, I could see it taking you anywhere from 50 to 70 hours. I will say the end game in God of War Ragnarok feels markedly less grindy than it did in the last game where you just ran around grinding out mist echoes for like two to three dozen hours just to get your equipment upgraded so you could take on the Valkyrie. It feels like they listened to that criticism and they said, okay, well, the stuff we have here is going to be a little more meaningful, a little more impactful, and we're going to put a little more effort into it to make it unique and not just endless grind. Though, to be fair, in Muspelheim, for example, you can grind indefinitely if you want to. And speaking of the Muspelheim challenges, I figured I would run through these real quick just because I find them to be lacking some very important quality of life improvements that would greatly improve the joy players might feel while going through them. You see, for the base challenges, there's three basic rooms. These are offshoots of one larger arena in the middle, and they each present different challenges for you to complete. For example, it'll offer you two possible challenges that you can take on of varying difficulty. You take these on in whichever order you want, and after you've cleared out all three rooms, you'll unlock the final challenges. Now, this is where it gets weird. You unlock the final challenges based on which order you complete the follow-up challenges or the ones you've already completed in each individual room. If that sounds needlessly complicated, it's because it is. <laughs> I mean, just look at this guide. This is on powerpicks.com. They did a really good guide for this section of the game. Honestly, if you aren't looking up guides, this is painfully tedious to do because you see, you have to complete them in specific orders in order to unlock each individual item. There's a quick line of dialogue by Freya, who is of course with you in the end game instead of Atreus. And she basically says that like the room is listening to your actions and the challenges you complete. So the order you do them will affect which final challenge you get. And so you can kind of put two and two together relatively easily, but this is like unnecessarily complicated, right? Like you complete a challenge in room one, which is the one on the left. Then you complete a challenge in the middle room and that will lead you to the endurance challenge, which is one of the six final challenges. Now, if it was just about pure combinations, then you should also be able to combine like room one and room one, room two, room two, room three, room three, just doubled up. You can't actually do that, which is why there's only six possible combinations instead of the nine that there should be. If it were the case that you were just looking at, you know, a combination of three, you square it, that kind of thing. But one of my frustrations with this is that you have to keep track of which of these combos you've completed yourself, and you're gonna kinda stumble into it when you first go to Muspelheim, and as of right now, when I'm recording this video, 
There is no UI element that tells you which of these you've already completed and which order you've already tried. So if you're not paying super close attention or if it's late at night like it was when I was doing this, you very well might just totally accidentally pull up the same like three challenges three times in a row, which you'll only discover after completing two different challenges within each of the rooms to trigger the final challenge that you've already completed. I spent like four hours grinding out these Muspelheim challenges and I probably could have gotten it done in two if it were a little more clear how for one, to unlock each of these final challenges, and also if they specified which ones I had already completed, so that if I pulled up a guide like this, I could just be like, oh, I don't need to do that, I don't need to do that, okay. What I ended up doing is looking at a guide like this, saying, okay, Phantom Challenge, I did fight the Phantom already, yeah, okay, so I don't need to do that one. And then, oh, Shield Breaker Challenge. I haven't done that one yet. Okay, so I'll go do that. And then I cross that off my list. The most help the UI gives you is a counter of how many of the final challenges you've actually completed. And that's just not that helpful, specifically when there's all these combinations to be had. I mean, this is just like, come on. <laughs> Like, I, I get that they wanted to pad out the end game a little bit and give you the chance to earn more rewards and stuff. And I'll be real, I got so many crafting materials, so much XP, so many freaking everything that frankly, I, I didn't need to go and grind Muspelheim ever again after I finished this run mostly because I repeated myself multiple times. But I can't help but feeling like after completing those offshoot rooms, if I had returned back to the main central room to finish out the final challenges and they were just six challenges open to you and you knock them out in whichever order you want, that would have been far less annoying and I would have greatly preferred it. It would have greatly trimmed down the amount of time you spend in Muspelheim, which is probably why they didn't do that. But still, I, I think that this system they have right now is just unnecessarily complicated and borderline annoying <laughs> but beyond this there's just so much to do i mean you can go back to niflheim if you want you can go back to sindri's house and talk to the weird squirrel friend you can figure out how to go back to freaking jotunheim you can go back to the witch's house in uh midgard and speak with charlie i mean there's there's just so freaking much stuff to do it's frankly ridiculous and if this video weren't already aggressively long then i would probably go through more of it but you know what? It's kind of, I think, reflective of the game itself. The The sheer volume of stuff to be done here is pretty impressive. And the fact that it's so daunting to even cover in a video should tell you how daunting it must have been to create all of this. And I got to hand it to Santa Monica Studio because every time I expected X, they gave me X plus two or X times two. Like they just consistently surprised me in the best possible ways. And I can't praise it enough. I mean, God of War Ragnarok, in almost every way, surprised me and took me back. And I'm sure you're seeing, after getting through this whole video, if you've gotten this far, thank you, by the way, you're probably seeing that I also am just kind of in awe. Because it's not common for us to get games like this that blow us away in, in this capacity. But... It really is that remarkable of a game. Also, hey, real quick, it's Luke in the middle of the editing process for this video. I totally forgot to mention like a whole paragraph I had written out in the script. I guess I just 
skipped it uh, somehow. But one of the cooler and also underwhelming moments at the same time in the entirety of the endgame is when you go to Niflheim and you start completing a favor. It's a favor called the Broken Prison. And in that favor, you're basically going through waves of enemies. It seems pretty standard. But after you fight through all of those waves, you can eventually discover the real tier that's just been locked away in hiding so it turns out he was alive all that time um this was something i actually like came across pretty late in the process of creating this video and then when i realized it i was like oh well crap so i guess he odin didn't actually kill him there's a hidden quest line you can find and then you can discover the real tier uh you know what it's it's fine. I actually don't like this as much as if Odin actually did just kill off Tyr. I think that that, in a lot of ways, at least in my humble opinion, works better for Odin's character uh, just because it makes sense. But you know what? They wanted to bring back Tyr. So you get to talk to Tyr. He talks to you a little bit and it's fine. I don't know. I just found this really underwhelming. It It's like in those movies where they kill off a character and you're like, okay, well... It happened and now the stakes are high. And then at the last minute, you find out the character never died and they've been alive this whole time. And it just kind of feels like they chickened out of committing to the plot point. That's kind of where this left me. Funnily enough, this is one of the most difficult thing about making these kinds of like videos that attempt to be somewhat comprehensive of a game's stories and plot points is that they take so long to make and write out and outline and then to edit and film that by the time we're like, almost done with it usually we've discovered a few other little elements that like we probably contradicted ourselves in over the course of the video and then like we could go back and reshoot the whole thing but you know what it just isn't worth it so i'm correcting it now no odin did not actually kill Tyr. there is a secret quest line you can find in niflheim and you can find the real tier. I wish you couldn't because I feel like he's he's more boring in this form than if he were just dead at Odin's hands. And uh, so I'm a little kind of underwhelmed by this big reveal that I think was supposed to be like, oh my God, that's so cool. I just found this really underwhelming, especially because he looks identical and seems to be just a copy and paste of the form that Odin took, which makes sense because Odin took his form when he came and deceived everybody, but still kind of annoying. But there's tons of stuff like this within God of War Ragnarok's endgame. All sorts of little bitty secrets and little tidbits that you can find. I've already mentioned a handful of them, and I'm sure a lot of you will let others know about more in the comment section. And I think that's a testament to just how many cool details are in the game, even after you finish the main story to find, even if they are somewhat underwhelming. And okay, it's Luke from the future past again. There's one more thing I want to touch on on and discuss it's actually two things but i figured it's easier if i just show you what i'm talking about as opposed to describe it so here we go now when you're playing god of war ragnarok often you'll set for yourself a favor or some side quest you're doing in this case i have a save pulled up this is after the main story is over but in the middle of end game content but still after muspelheim so we're roughly like 30 to 35 hours in with this save in this case what i'm looking for is a favor specifically specifically called the scent of survival. I'm going to track it just like you can see here. And in order to complete this, I have to head to a very specific point on the map within Vanaheim. This is pretty part for the course as far as completing side quests in God of War Ragnarok. You'll set it in the menus and then seek it out using the compass that you see at the top of the screen. Now in the review for God of War Ragnarok, I tore the game a new one because I feel like this is one of the worst compasses 
in any game in recent memory. It's straight up broken. And the fact that nobody talks about how broken it is, to me, reveals like a, a pretty severe issue within games reviewing and journalism. The fact that this thing is so clearly broken that nobody talks about it, it's bizarre to me. What I'm talking about is right here, you see that we have on the compass a point marked above us. It's specifically the blue one for 162 meters out. As I paddle forward, you see it immediately swaps significantly to the left. The reason it's doing this is because right back here, I haven't reached the checkpoint basically, or the gate for it to adjust the tracking point. Because basically what it's doing, if we go over to the map, is it has this marked as the location we need to go to. But instead of just marking that on the compass permanently, it's that way. It's northwest in, at that point, and it'll adjust accordingly. As you work your way around corners, it'll always reflect backwards, reflecting that one direction. It doesn't do that. What it does is it sets up basically a path that it's recommending that you follow with a couple of waypoints along the way, specifically along this trail. And as I walk along those waypoints and cross those barriers, it will adjust what it shows on the compass to reflect that. An easier way of thinking about it is if I were over here at this mystic gateway in the southern wilds, but my point that I was trying to reach was over at the Vanier Shrine down here, instead of just pointing west on the compass, it would be pointing north. I would travel north, reach this point here where I can actually travel west into the water. It would then switch to showing west. I'd hop in the water, but now because I can't go west through this, it'll swap back to showing I need to go north and then I'll go north and then west, and then it'll guide me along this riverway back down eventually to the point. It's not actually a compass is the point. What this is is a glorified mini-map slapped within a compass framework, and I hate it dearly. Because in these moments, I'll be paddling this way, and then I'll realize, oh, I need to go that way, so I'll turn, and I'll go that way. And then I'll come up to the shore, I'll reach another checkpoint, and now you notice it points forward, so I run forward. And here I can notice these tracks. Look at them real quick. It'll set a new waypoint for me. And then you see it swaps all around just based on passing this arbitrary point. It's infuriatingly stupid. It's so broken. I was speaking to a developer who worked on this game during the early phase of its development. And he, you know, wasn't involved in the later stages of putting this together, but he was even like, yeah, dude, it's been driving me crazy. I've been playing the game myself and it's absolutely broken. It's horrible. And honestly, I normally see a good number of like fanboys and girls out there defending even the stupidest design choices from some of these big name games like Elden Ring, God of War, Death Stranding and stuff like that. Things that we all can agree are broken and stupid. But for some reason, we just pretend like they're not because we're fanboys of the game. But with this, I haven't come across anybody who has tried to argue with a straight face that this is not totally broken. The most that I've seen in terms of defending this, specifically in my video review of the game that went up before this game launched, the most people said was, well, it was kind of like that in the first game. So I think they just stuck with it because it's familiar to people. Like, that's not an excuse. Just because it was broken the last time doesn't mean that it's okay to be broken now. But enough about that. What else is there to talk about? Why am I back in Vanaheim doing a little uh, side quest for you? Well, it's because I want to talk briefly about one of the other unfortunate realities of God of War Ragnarok that I think is just an artifact of the way that they've structured a lot of this side content, and I don't necessarily see it as a problem, but let me explain. You see, what I'm referring to is that a lot of the coolest sections of God of War Ragnarok are locked behind end game content, and specifically side quests that you have to complete after the main story. 
I don't have a problem with structuring side content this way because I, I mean, obviously this thing we're doing right now is an ability you unlock later in the game, specifically after you've helped the wolves reset the moon, blah, blah, blah. You know, we've already been through that. But the downside is that a huge number of people uh, and I know this because we've done surveys and studies on this with actual polling, thousands of people with Death Stranding, with Assassin's Creed Odyssey, with uh, The Last of Us Part Two, Tons of polling on this matter, specifically surrounding whether or not players continue to basically do completionist runs after the main story is finished. Here's the, uh, the paper boat. You know, this is something that we don't get uh, to see unless you go back and you pursue this side quest after the main story is over. And I would bet you good money, there's a lot of people in the comment section right now who have never seen this side quest, even though it is listed on your list of favors. It's very prominent from the moment that you finish the game, it's unlocked and you can pursue this. But I think it's because a lot of people just have the generalized attitude that once you finish the game's main story, and specifically once you go and see the true ending specifically after Brock's funeral and the credits roll, it's probably a good time to set the controller down and move on. And again, to be clear, like I said, I don't have a problem with this way of designing games. I think it's great to have elements like this, which are really cool and badass, but are locked behind end game content. I think my generalized uh, point here is that if you're one of these people that finished the game and then walked away, you should absolutely go back and try it. Because what you just saw there is I was attacked by a dragon you can see it off in the distance flying around i was attacked that might be a bird actually no i think that looks dragony it might be a bird i can't tell <laughs> but we were attacked by a freaking dragon and in this special area in vanaheim we actually get to unlock another secret area that you don't get access to unless you've completed this side quest or pursued it and it's called the crater it's a side area where you get some pretty cool boss fights like the one against the gigantic dragon and a lot of players are never gonna see this and it's bizarre to me because you're just gonna miss it out same with like finding the actual tier after the fact or any of the other cool things you can find in the side content of the game after the main story is over so if you are one of those people that put the controller down at the end of the main story. Don't, don't do that. This is a game that you absolutely should pursue extra content after the fact. There's so much here, it's frankly ridiculous. And I could probably do another three, four hour video just on the end game content and all of the cool side stuff you find. Like I said, this isn't really a critique of the devs. I like that there's stuff extra on the side after the fact. However, I just want to encourage people to go and do this side content because there's so many cool things to be found after the main story. God of War Ragnarok is one of the contenders for game of the year without a doubt, just on its main story. Once you add in all the side content, you'll start to understand why there are so many impassioned people arguing that it should be outright game of the year and it's because of these side quests and all the extra stuff on the side so i'm just gonna gonna leave that there because this video is getting insane and my editor jacob who's helping me put this together is gonna kill me if i keep adding stuff to this video so i'm gonna call this little tidbit there but okay what's the lasting legacy what are we gonna take from this long term well for one i want to just say that i think we're probably gonna see the god of war franchise put on ice for a little bit and by a little bit, I mean probably six to eight years. And that's primarily because we know that Santa Monica Studio is currently working on another IP. 
it seems as though they've reached a really good pausing point. They're going to win all sorts of Game of the Year awards. They're going to, I'm sure, break all sorts of sales records when all is said and done with Ragnarok and across the board. This has been a tremendous success from them. So I think now they're looking to try other things and that's good. I think it's good to shake it up every once in a while so you don't just end up making the same game 15 times and losing all creative drive like we've seen with some other <laughs> big franchises. <laughs> Assassin's Creed. <clears throat> I guess I could have just like leaned out of the camera. That thing. That's the problem. But honestly, I think it's good. I mean, if you're going to go out for a little while, go out on top instead of doing like the Fallout thing where you go out in the absolute worst possible way imaginable with Fallout 76. So I'm glad to see them going out this way. As for what the next game should bring, I've thought a lot about this and I, I really am not entirely sure. Some people have speculated, oh, it's going to be all about Atreus. And then other people have said, no, it's going to be back to, to Kratos, but it's going to be ancient Egypt and Atreus is going to come along. I really don't know what to make of it. I have a few opinions. For one, Atreus is so closely tied into the Norse mythology. I just don't think that you can pull him out and send him to Egypt. I just don't see that playing real well. And also, no dissing against Atreus, but I feel like his character arc has gone pretty complete at this point, and I don't feel the need for him to continue uh, as a centerpiece character in the franchise as he currently stands. You could do like a cool reinvention thing where he's faced with tragedy or where, you know, he becomes a father himself and then it's kind of like repeating the cycle. But at that point, like it stops to feel like God of War because God of War is Kratos. Like, you can't get rid of Kratos and have it still be God of War, at least in my opinion. I think that would be an absolute disaster if they tried to shake it up and uh, and move on from the key character. I mean, the titular character. And in that same vein, I feel like Kratos has done so much in these last two games in terms of character development. I'd be really interested to see what they do with him if he were to go to Egypt and how they make his character interesting and have some some stakes or something to do and motivate him. There is the idea that we threw out on stream earlier today, actually, uh, before I'm filming this, which was basically just a suggestion that we brainstormed where basically like Kratos would be called up to go to Egypt to help the oppressed people get freed from the gods there who are oppressing them. And that kind of becomes the new modus operandi of Kratos is to go and help people in these other realms and free them from the tyrannical gods. So he kind of becomes a almost like Dog the Bounty Hunter, but chasing down evil gods in other realms. It, it could be interesting. But here's the thing. It's all speculation at this point, and it's so early in the process. I'm sure in like the studios and in the offices at Santa Monica Studio, they have some ideas. They're like, yeah, we thought of something five years ago, and we, we like we've been sitting on it. Not sure what we'll do, but we've got some ideas. I think that's where they're at. And they're going to take some time before they fully commit to the setting. They're going to try to figure out what that game is supposed to be. And more importantly, they're going to figure out what that game needs to be in order to completely stand out and feel unique. Because especially Ragnarok being a tremendous game, but also so close to the release of God of War 2018, it's not super differentiated. And a lot of people who will see footage on screen over the course of this video might mistake that footage for God of War 2018. 
And that's in large part because it's the, the same engine. It also runs on PlayStation 4, and so it didn't really get a full generational leap or upgrade in terms of tech. So it'll be interesting what happens. I mean, we might see just a God of War Egypt. They don't really explain it too much, and it's just sort of like, a, okay, we're doing this now. Don't think about it too much, and it'll just be kind of a big raucous open world adventure game and they just fully embrace that i don't i don't really know but i'm excited to see what they do with it and as far as i'm concerned everything that santa monica studio has been touching turns to gold and so i am very interested to see what they do next there's rumors they're working on a sci-fi game i don't know if that's tr the truth or or not but either way i'm pumped to see what they bring to the table next but you know what all of that leads us to the final kind of conclusion of this video which i didn't write out i didn't script carefully because i kind of wanted to just speak from the heart and i'm not gonna say anything that i haven't said already i think it's just that this game i had a lot of very high expectations for and I'm very pleased to report that everything I was hoping they would do, they did, except they did it 10 times better than I could have imagined. And that's a feeling I haven't had in video games in quite a while. Uh, even other tremendous games that have released recently, like even Elden Ring, you know, I could point to that and be like, that's a remarkable game. But it kind of did exactly what I was expecting. I was like, yeah, a big open world adventure game, but with like Dark Souls combat. They did that and it's great with tons of bosses. It's amazing. But like they did what I expected. There weren't a ton of surprises or subversions of expectations to replace it with something even better. Except God of War Ragnarok. Every time I thought, okay, this would be cool. X would be cool. They took, okay, X would be cool. Okay. And then they took that and gave me X cubed and it just blew me away. In a lot of ways, as cringy as it may be, it made me feel kind of like a teenager again where you were like so hyped over a video game and then you get it and you play it and it's just so much better than you could have possibly thought and it's that that sort of like childlike innocence where you just are hopeful and excited and passionate it's something i i haven't felt a lot in gaming and i'm very glad to say that god of war ragnarok gave me that that feeling in a, in a very real and tangible way uh, which I greatly appreciate it because especially doing this for a job, I'm very thankful and I owe it to you guys. So thank you. I mean, the maniacs out there who watch this video in its entirety, I owe this all to you. Um, <laughs> but like critiquing games for a living, you do start to get just like the cynical prick <laughs> attitude where, you know, you're just playing the game and you're constantly, you're so used to just poking holes in this this art form and products that people send you that you kind of lose sight of the good sometimes, which is something I try very hard not to do to try to remember like, okay, this has problems, but it still has a lot of positives. Right. And I, I think this game is one of those important resets for at least people like me who kind of get, get drowned out in the, uh, the, the ocean of crappy games that constantly flow out into the public. And this is just the ultimate palate cleanser that reminds you why you love gaming, why you love narrative games. And, uh, for that, I mean, I've, I've Santa Monica studio and PlayStation to thank, and I am hopeful that this video and this journey through the story and gameplay systems of God of War Ragnarok was relatively 
uh, interesting for you. Um, like I said, if you enjoyed the video, like it, share it with a friend who you think might appreciate it. That's probably the best way you can help out this video is by directly sharing it with a friend. And uh, of course, subscribing is always welcome. Do that if you want. I won't stop you. And like I said, we got we got some merch items now. By the time you're watching this, we might have even more crazy merch available. So go check out LukeStevensTV.com and check out what we have because there's a lot of cool stuff out there. So with that, I am going to go uh, get some rest and I'm going to chill out. It's pretty late at night. My, my son is <laughs> curled up and is sleeping and is is very cozy and comfy so i'm probably gonna go do the same cuddle up and try to relax after all of this my voice is you probably have heard it over the course of this video my voice has slowly deteriorated over the last few days of filming this video so i'm going to take a much needed break and uh try to relax you are wonderful thank you for watching thank you for supporting me never think that i i don't appreciate it i truly do come join me over on luke stevens live if you want to hang out with me while i stream um come say hey i watched the whole video sucker and i'm gonna be like holy crap you're amazing and it's gonna play out like that it's gonna be fun uh but with that i'm gonna stop rambling pretty brain foggy at this point much love everybody thank you for watching i'll see you in the next one hugs and kisses bye-bye 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 i'm bad at outros bye <laughs>